everybody. Welcome back. This is going to be episode nine, part two of the hunt for El Chapo, the world's most dangerous fugitive. But before we get back into that, the Murph man and I are very happy to let you guys know that our Patreon channel has launched as promised. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. At that channel, you're going to get some great stuff like our Q&A we just did. And you're going to hear 12 episodes from Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Yes, the real inspiration behind Netflix Narcos and the takedown of Pablo Escobar. Let's give you a little bit of sample of the Q&A and episode one from Inside the Real Narcos with The Real Narcos. Here we go. All right, guys, let's start off and and kind of like they do in the Bible in the beginning. Right. So in the beginning, you were you were a little kid in Mexico or in uh, Texas. Um, Why did when did you first know what age did you first know you wanted to become a cop? Yeah. um, You know what? I started off uh, in uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, grew up in uh, Hebronville, Texas, which is a little town, 5000 population, about 50 miles out of Laredo. A lot of people don't know where Laredo, Texas is. It's on the border. Anyway, I, I never really uh, thought about being a cop. You know, uh, when I went to uh, college, I remember at A&I in Kingsville, they were offering a, uh, uh, I didn't know what degree I wanted to get into. I just knew, I, you know, I wanted a degree and there was a, you know, sociology and they had yeah, some criminology there at the Ellis Unit. And knowing a little bit, I researched a little and I said, man, this is where they're their house in the death the firefight started obviously uh, the texas rangers were there big shootout uh they they killed uh they killed carrasco the main guy and i think two of the witnesses were also killed the guy who helped out carrasco on the blackboard i had him on death row too you can hear more over at our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Now, a quick sample of the Q&A that we had. We took our first questions from Frederick Nicolosi, Corey Southard, Kelsey Kautz, and Rebecca Foster. Thank you guys for your questions. Steve, I think it's time to get into the Q&A for August in the year of our Lord, 2021. Kyrie Domine Domine Requiem. Hallelujah, Frederick brother. Nicolosi. I hope I pronounce that right, Frederick. Frederick Nicolosi. He sent a message. And actually, Murph, this message is for you. He said, hey, Murph and Morgan, my question is for Mr. Murph. After Pablo was killed, have you or any of your colleagues ever had your life threatened from his people? You know, uh, Frederick, thank you very much for the question uh, and the respect of calling me Mr. When you call Morgan, you know, I, well, I'm not going to tell you what we call him. It's a special <laughs> name for him. At but, least I'm not called El Pequeño Little Shorty like you are. <laughs> um, we get, Javier and I get asked this question a lot, believe it or not. Javier and I always do a Q&A at the end of every show. Uh, we, <laughs> it's a funny story. We used to let people shout up questions from the audience, and that really got oh, out. Oh, there of was hand. a recipe for disaster. <laughs> oh, especially in England. Well, I tell you what, I thought uh, I've just. We never have security details, but this one college happened to have a security detail. There might be two soccer teams in that city, so but I'm not going to mention the city. Thank God they were there that night because they were dragging people out left and right. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the English take their soccer, as they call it, football, seriously. Uh, one of the most frequently asked questions is this question, you know, have we been threatened? Well, here's the true answer, and here's the difference. When we took out Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel... Do you want to hear more of the great answers from Steve Murphy on how they brought down Pablo and did 
they actually ever get their lives threatened, we've got more over on our Patreon channel. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes. Now, let's get back to episode nine, part two, the hunt for El Chapo, the world's most dangerous fugitive. Folks, hang on because this is going to be a wild ride. Why are they so different than everybody else? What made, what was it culturally, historically about the Mexican Marines, the Navy that made them that kind of, in a sense, incorruptible? I mean, it it is, you know, we we see it happen even in the U.S. You have uh, investigations that go south because of a leak or, you know, there's something that, but to think that in Mexico where you think it's this hotbed of corruption, which in a lot of areas it is, that you've got this one organization that is just a stalwart, that, you know, just they're stand-up people. What made them that way? I believe that the admiral who had the vision, who's been there for over, <clears throat> I mean, young, young, but really smart, had all the, uh, of course, all the intelligence, had this unit built from the ground up, and had uh, <clears throat> all the access. We started working with him since 2008 on the setas and all the way up to the Sinaloa cartel. And you got to remember that the Sinaloa cartel wasn't worked up as much as we did until Paul came around, until we started targeting Chapo as well. So he had, I would say, he had all the uh, right intelligence with all the um, alphabet soup in the embassy. But uh, the major, major intelligence came out of DEA when we actually hunted... um, uh, we hunted uh, El Chapo. And what you got under Morgan, what you got to understand is, and this really was the game changer as far as once we once I got there and my first six months there, all I did was every uh, twenty times a day go, Abe, why can't we do this? Or Abe, why is this like this? Or Abe, are you kidding me? We can't, you know, just kind of learning you know, what we could do and what we couldn't do and the the, the interagency of Mexico and, you know, just kind of how things ran and what opportunities we had. But what the game changer was uh, not only, and I saw this in Colombia because, so I used the Colombia experience. In Colombia, we had the Colombia National Police that had, countrywide authority, right? And there's a lot of Colombian National Police and they have, you know, significant paramilitary capabilities. And so when you're working with the Colombian National Police and we were dealing directly with General Serrano, the head of the police, and he would authorize operations, we had countrywide, you know, whatever counterpart from the Colombian National Police had authorization to do, you know, to to get resources, to, you know, move pieces around the country and without telling, you know, the local commander what they were doing or why they were doing it. And that was the issue in Mexico was you really didn't, we didn't have a unit that could just go countrywide and take their own inherent support and you know, capable operational capabilities. They, the especially with the federal police, 
they didn't really have a military or paramilitary kind of operation. So they would have to go to the local, either police or the local military, and information would get out and it would get compromised. So here you had this unit that had was able to operate in very challenging environments and had incredible amounts of experience dealing with, you know, very violent groups and also, you know, was beyond um, because for them it was life or death. They had to protect information and protect intelligence and protect their identities because for them it was life or death, right? If they weren't good at keeping secrets, the Zetas were going to find out and they're dead. So uh, they bring that to the table of all of a sudden we have a unit that can go anywhere in Mexico and take helicopters, have their own, you know, vehicles on the ground. Uh, we have an admiral that, you know, because the secretary of the Navy is the one that's authorizing this, that has the ability and go in and get forces in whatever part of the country. So that was the, that was significant. But I think what's important or where to start with what the environment was as challenges, as challenging as Mexico is, it was even doubly challenging because during this period, they had just had the presidential election and the the party that was leaving power was a different was the pan and the pre was coming in and the pre had controlled mexico for like 86 years until the pan had won i think in 2002 so the 2001 yeah so we had what we had was Everybody that we'd worked with, that we had good relations, that we we had really good working relationships, especially with the attorney general and the attorney general's office, which is very important in Mexico, they were all on the way out. And since they were competing parties, there was no there was no handoff, right? The the people that were coming in under the new party knew nothing about what we had been doing with the old government, didn't know anything about investigations, didn't know anything about cases, didn't really like the U.S. or know how to work with us. And so not only then, so everything came to a stop, right? We had really no partners to really work directly operationally with. But luckily, the only continuity in Mexico really is the military, right? Because they don't change from parties. You know, they're, they're, you know, they have progression and rise up through the ranks. And so with, with, especially with Samar, the Navy, you know, we, there was continuity in the changeover. And what we saw was out of the madness of the, the transition, right? There was opportunity because under the prior administration, Mexico had been split up like north to south into like three separate zones. So the Pacific side, which is where Sinaloa was, that was given to the army to combat the Sinaloa cartel. The middle part of the country was given to the police to go after the Knights Templario, to go after the cartels in Michoacan. Um, and then the, 
the eastern part of Mexico was given to the, to the Navy to go after the Zetas. And that's, what, that's the way it had been for six years before under, under President Calderon. So what had happened, obviously, is because it was limited like that, it was actually beneficial to the cartels because all they had to do was co-opt one agency and they could pretty much assure themselves that they weren't going to be targeted act actively. And so what you had in Sinaloa was the cartel was very comfortable there, Sinaloa, because there wasn't much activity against them from government agencies. And so, but there was also the restriction that different agencies, like the police couldn't go into Sinaloa to go after the, the Sinaloa cartel because that was the army. So they would have to coordinate through the army. So there was those limitations built in. Well, when, when the, the administration changed, everybody that was coming in didn't know about those rules, right? So we had, you know, from discussions with the Navy, they're like, well, hey, that, those rules are all gone. Now we can operate countrywide. You know, until somebody comes in and figures stuff out and puts in new rules, in all this chaos of the transition, we saw, well, hey, there's, there's actually opportunity. And so we kind of took advantage of that by, you know, and, and the new president, Peña Nieto, had significant security issues and knew that the Navy was probably the most capable for going after important security issues. And so he depended very heavily on Admiral Soberon, who was the head of the Navy, who was a great guy, and on the, the special forces team that we worked with. So it was kind of just fortunate circumstances that all of a sudden the unit we had built all this relationship with had the ability to operate throughout the country and we were able to take advantage of that. And we came up with a plan of, you know, look, we have to start somewhere and we got to start learning everything we can about what's happening with the Sinaloa cartel in the, in Mexico who the who the main uh, facilitators are, who the main you know money makers and who handles the finances and who handles you know the drug trafficking part. And we had to start going after the network and you know um, reducing the effectiveness and the power of the cartel and its network in order to weaken it and start forcing them to have to change their, you know, um, regular day-to-day -day structure operations. They had to communicate more because things were happening that required them to, you know, communicate outside of their secret network of communications and things like that. And that was the whole plan of, you know, trying to get to the point where we would have the opportunity at some point to go after Chapos directly. And so that's where it started. And, you know, we, and it was, you know, originally was against Miles Zambada and Chapo. And then, unfortunately, once we started this plan, uh, it kind of got sidetracked because all of a sudden 
Caro Quintero is released through corruption, is released in the middle of the night from the prison in uh, Guadalajara, and we're all of a sudden having to now focus resources to start up on another major, major priority for us, uh, you know, to go after him and, you know, everything that, that, that starts happening from that of him getting out and getting back into the drug trade. So that's kind of what we were confronted with and where we were trying to, you know, to have a, a structured way of going after him and start breaking him down. Hey, Abe, um, so pick up from what Paul was saying there. We talked about Carlos Quintero. Who, I mean, I'm going to say this not in a flippant way, but right. So it's, it's him. Who cares, right? There's a reason why you care about this guy getting released and he's a high value target. What was his, why was he so important to DEA? Well, he killed uh, our special agent, Keith Camarena, back in 1985, and it's been 36 years where uh, <clears throat> we have had like no uh, diplomatic uh, immunity there in Mexico. But he only served, out of the 40 years, <clears throat> he only served uh, 28 years. And Paul and I were actually having breakfast uh, when we got a call from um, from. Um, what was it, Paul, from a judge or from, no, from the attorney general's, attorney office. general's office giving us <clears throat> that they were going to release him? Uh, they actually released him, and he actually walked out of the big old uh, out of the front door. Uh, at, two, at, two in the, at two in the morning. Two in the morning. So that had to feel like a huge slap in the face. It, it was. It was a huge slap in the face, and knowing the fact that uh, <clears throat> the. Uh, According to the judge that released him, he said that he had served his time because it was a state charges. Not that uh, <clears throat> we still had to prove that uh, back then we were under um, diplomatic. Um, uh, we did have that diplomatic passports, not immunity, but sure enough, they were going to take that federal. So within time, of course, they did realize that he they had released him, that there was corruption there. And now he's becoming one of the uh, a bigger target as Chapo. He's running uh, methamphetamine, running fentanyl out of uh, Sonora, and still doing the same thing. Oh, so you had three targets at the time, right? Yeah, but but actually, so what? Just to give you some kind of insight of because this I think is important later. So, Steve, we're actually, we're having breakfast with Asa Hutchinson, right? She's down there. Uh, and who and was Asa at the time? Asa was, he had just got elected to be the governor of Arkansas. You know, he had been the DA administrator back several years before. He was a congressman from Arkansas. So he had just, he had just got won the election in Arkansas and was going to be taken over as governor in a few months. And so we were having breakfast with him when, you know, we tell him we got to go. Chapo's escaped. And obviously, he understood the implications of that. Yeah, I'm sorry, Carl Quintero. And so, um, so Abe and I, you know, immediately go to the attorney general's office to meet with the Mexican attorney general. Well, in the transition, the person they had selected to be the attorney general, this guy, Mario Karam, was no fan of the U.S., right? And he was actually, because we had such a great working relationship with the prior attorney general, he 
right when he came in, he said, nope, no cooperation with DEA or any, any of the federal U.S. agencies. Everything has to be, be go through one person, right? There'll be one person point of contact for everything. Well, again, we have hundreds of agents in Mexico, many offices. There's no way one person could coordinate all of this. But when Abe and I went over there and said, hey, this is outrageous, he's like, what's the big deal? The guy's done 28 years. What do you want? We're like, well, one, he shouldn't have been released because there's an extradition request and a warrant you know, from the U.S. So if he was released, he should have been extradited immediately to the U.S. So that was obviously a big issue. And then his whole attitude about, I don't understand why, you know, he was just like very dismissive until the the press that came out in the U.S., and the political reaction from Congress and and others that you know whiplashed back on Mexico that it was you know that's the only reason he decided to try and do anything, which which was really nothing except appeal the decision of the judge to release him. It was appealed to the Supreme Court, and which finally the Supreme Court ruled he he should have never have been released. So that was that was kind of the environment of all, of all of a sudden we don't have the attorney general's office to really work that closely with because that's totally flipped. But now we have the Navy that can operate throughout the whole country. And so then we started the different investigations and operations and where DEA is is so well positioned to do this is because we have you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of investigations actively going on in the U.S. that are directly linked back to Mexico, where they're doing wire intercepts, they're doing BlackBerry intercepts at the time, all of this directly on targets that were in Mexico. So from our network of DEA and operations, we knew more about what was going on in Mexico and had the direct access and intelligence and cases ongoing and communications to know who were the most key, who were the key people to go after and start neutralizing to try and degrade you know the cartel and to be able to at some point get to Chapo and so that's what we started doing and um, you know so we had to add on to that also. The now we needed resources to go after Carlo Quintero as well. So where, where are we at in time on this right now, Paul? What what is because what we don't want to do is um, mix the the stories for the folks. In other words, was this the uh, first escape of Chapo or the second escape of Chapo that we're talking no, this, about? No, this 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 is this is before the first capture on February 14th. So this is, okay. he, he's been in the wind since 1993. And he so he's been on been, the lam for 13 years now, yeah, going on 13 yeah. years. Got it. Yeah. So you've got a lot of high value targets. Your resources are being spread thin. And and obviously when you say, who was the third target? Uh, you talked about uh, Carol, Carl Quintero, uh, El Chapo. And Maya Zambada is Maya Zambada. And uh, what was his significance? He was the, and Abe can talk about it more, but he's super old guard as well. His, his involvement goes back all the way back to the, 
you know, beginnings of the Guadalajara cartel. He was a young, lower level guy. He's now in his late sixties by this point, but he's very, he's as, as public as Chapo was, Mayo was that far below the radar. But he was the he was the guy that made a lot of the world go around. He's the one that had the really great connections to the Colombian cartels. Uh, but he was a lot more low key than Chapo, but also probably more respected by the other organizations. And and now he's taking over the Sinaloa cartel as well. He has uh, <clears throat> we had had uh, a couple of his sons arrested and been extradited into the U.S., and he's got a wealth of, um, of course, running the cartels, and well-respected, older gentleman, and has Chapo sons, you know, asking for, of course, always for that uh, mentoring, you know, what to do, not to do stuff in the uh, drug trade. But um, the guy has been around since the early 80s and has been running uh, the Sinaloa Cartel behind the back of Chapo and uh, still is running the now the Sinaloa Cartel. Wait a minute. So El Chapo's in prison. You mean we still have a drug problem coming out of Mexico? That that is right, uh, Murph. Uh, we still have. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. <laughs> no, there's still lots to do there. So you guys retired, and Mexico went all to hell again. I think it's a it's taken us to a uh, different uh, <clears throat> plateau where. Um, with this new administration, I know that the, the new president, Lopez Obrador, is saying that he'd rather give hugs than uh, bullets, or uh, he'd rather give hugs than bullets. So it's been a strange, um, uh, once we've retired, uh, this new administration has no perspective of going after any, any target in uh, Mexico at this point. Well, we're just going to hug our way out of it. If we just give enough hugs, everybody will become nice and fuzzy like you guys are, and the world will be a better place. So says Mr. Rogers. Sounds like somebody's lying in their pockets. Yeah. Well, hey, let's let's close in on this because we let's set the stage now for uh, this the operation that you both were involved in. But let's close out by saying this. So, Abe. What was your involvement, say, during the last couple years before uh, Chapa was captured again back on uh, February 22nd, 2014? Were you actively involved, you know, like on a weekly basis with the investigation and tracking him down? What was your association with the case at that time? At that time, I was the assistant uh, regional director, and I had daily contact with the group supervisor who actually ran that case. So all the operational plans that uh, went through on any operation that we did went through me before it went to Paul and the ambassador or the DCM. So every single operation that we did, every single um, information that we had, uh, was, of course, we coordinated with special operations. We coordinated with other uh, law enforcement agencies, but uh, we had daily contact with the group supervisor, with the case agent, and uh, ran all the intel basically out of um, the Mexico City office at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico. And DCM is the deputy chief of mission, which is basically like the number two person behind the ambassador, right? That is correct. Yes, Morgan. And, and I think we've talked about this on other episodes, Abe, but tell people, in, in terms of uh, the power of God on earth, what is the ambassador, when you have an ambassador of a country, what is, you know, what is their actual authority over everybody from the U.S. in that country? 
he basically has basically all the authority to, um, he's the guy in charge of all of the U.S. law enforcement, U.S. Department of State, and anybody to the consul generals, uh, out of the 10 consul generals that he had in charge, he basically ran the country. He's the direct contact from the uh, U.S. president in Mexico. Yeah. So, so what we're talking about is somebody who's very powerful. I'm sorry, Murph, it looked like you had something to add in there. All right. Well, you did. I wake you up from your nap. <laughs> we're at that time we're of day. We're getting close we're, to that time, by the way. Yeah. So, and, and Paul, too, just like what Abe was saying, everything that was rolling up through Abe was obviously rolling up to you. So you saw stuff that was going on um, in terms of the operation, right? Of course. No, I mean we dealt with this almost daily. We met with Abe, and I would meet with the commanders of the Navy. And, and and this isn't the only thing we had going with the Navy. I mean, we we had many, many other operations where either we were supporting them or they were going after targets that were priorities to us. So this was this was part of a lot bigger ongoing, I mean, everyday, everyday operations and all across the country. Okay. So he's captured February 22nd, 2014. What's the sense of relief at that point? Do you really, do you really think he is caught for the last time at that point? I mean, we know he escapes later, but is it your belief now Chapo's caught for the last time? Let me, let me tell you about this. So as a precursor before we get there, because this is, I think, a very incredible story. So at this point, we were working on this. We were also working with other agencies, the federal police as well, of going after different parts of the cartel. And we had a significant case out of our office in New York where they were up on communications of one of Chapo's main, Chapo's and Mayo's. Uh, main regional commanders and the head of his hit, you know, uh, assassination teams and muscle in the the northwestern part of Mexico in Sonora, uh, Durango, all the way up to the border, you know, and all from Tijuana all the way over through Arizona, and was was moving incredible amounts of cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, but was also you know, incredibly violent and involved in trying to take over other cartels' territories as well as, you know, fight other cartels. So this guy's name was Macho Prieto, which is like, what is that, a tough, pretty guy? Yeah, tough, pretty dude. So uh, as opposed to pretty tough dude, he was tough. So um, we we had these great intercepts directly into his communications through BlackBerry intercepts. And daily, we're getting all the communications of all the drugs that are moving, all the people are killing, pictures of the bodies, videos of the torture. Actually, uh, when when they would move a load across the border, they would have to take a picture of the people on the U.S. side and to show them, okay, it crossed. So we're getting all the photos every day of all the dope they've crossed and, you know, where they've crossed it and things like that. So, uh, but we're also getting photos of all of the, uh, you know, violence and tortures and beheadings and dismemberments. 
And so we get intelligence that he's going to, so he was indicted out of New York. We have, we actually have a provisional arrest warrant for him to be arrested in Mexico. And we had been working this case with the federal police. And so we knew he was going to be in this resort town of Puerto Penasco, which is about 90 miles south of the border with the U.S. from Arizona. And is this resort town right on the, the Gulf of California that is like the closest beach to Tucson and Phoenix. Even, you know, wait. Also known as the Rocky Point. Yeah, Rocky Point, Puerto Penasco. Very nice resort there. Very, you know, a lot of gringos own condos, very upscale, but it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the, the town of Puerto Penasco is like this little, you know, board, like Mexican town. But we knew that, that uh, Macho Prieto had plans to spend Christmas there with his wife. And so we thought, hey, this would be a good opportunity to try and capture him. But we also knew that he always had a huge entourage of protection of bad guys. So we also knew that they had corrupted all the local law enforcement in the area. And so even the police couldn't go in. If they tried to go in there in uniform with force, they're going to they're going to it's all going to be compromised way before they ever get to any of the locations because they're going to go through checkpoints and, you know, they'll be notified. So we came up with this undercover operation where the police started smurfing in people into the resort. You know, two of them would take a taxi from another town. Tell Some people of what smurfing is. Uh, you know, ones and twos, like just start secretly, instead of sending a big group, we're going to send two here through this method, you know, with, with, the, with the design of them all to arrive there and to be able to do an a under, you know, a secret operation at a certain time period. And so we had the, the police had actually got a husband, I mean, a man and woman acting as husband and wife into the resort who was feeding us real-time surveillance photos of him there with his wife, what was going on. And so the operation, we started moving the, the police up into that area, but we also knew that there was going to be, they were going to have a lot of protection in the area around the resort for him to include his brother was the head of his group of protection. So um, also the police, since they were going to the locations like they were and the chances they, they might get stopped when they're in a bus or in a vehicle at some military checkpoint or some other police checkpoint, they couldn't take their weapons with them. Right. So we were trying to having to figure out how are we going to get weapons to all of these guys once they get there. So and and I think this highlights, you know, as I go on with this, this highlights like the governments don't want to admit there's cooperation, but there is such cooperation. And at the at the ground level, you know, the whole brotherhood of law enforcement and it's all about trying to do the right thing and nobody's violating anybody's rights or whatever. But the only way you can do this is to take all the resources from wherever you can get them. And so obviously we're helping the police and we're there with them and all this. But, you know, it's 
and it's all acknowledged. It's not being hidden through the system. But they want to say later, oh, that you know, DEA was doing things here that they weren't authorized to, or or those type of things. All of these things we're talking about were coordinated at very high levels, you know, and so it's not like we're just you know doing this rogue at the time. So we actually get fifty police personnel, women and men, into the resort. Um, in order to the ruse was how we were going to get all this to happen, they had one of the one of the head commanders from the police, this female we worked with all the time. She was actually of French ancestry and spoke really good French. So the ruse was she's some diplomat from France in Mexico. She's going to be going to Rocky Point for Christmas, you know, to hang out at the resort. And she's going to have her entourage of protection that's going to accompany her, right? And But those were actually our vehicles that have diplomatic tags on them that are the escorts, right? And so with that, we were able to drive into the resort and go through the checkpoints. And because they were diplom- she was a diplomat and there were diplomatic tags, they didn't search the vehicles. And that's, we had cops in the vehicles and all their, all their armaments. We actually had them in golf bags. We had bought all these golf bags and the police had put the, the guns, all the rifles and everything down in the golf bags, like there were golf clubs, you know, if somebody looked in the back. So, we get we get all of this, you know. We have we have several agents there with them. We get there, we're see they're seeing surveillance, you know, come by, and we see the we see actually vehicles that we already know of because of the BlackBerry intercepts. We see these vehicles circling, coming in, checking out what's going on, and, and from the intercepts, we actually know that they had checked on it and they had reported back and said, "No, this is fine. It's just some diplomat here on vacation." So. You know, we knew everything was kind of chill from that. So the idea was, and we we knew they had everything corrupted. The police, they had the airport, the little airport there controlled, all of it. So the plan was, as any plan, right, this is going to be a surgical, you know, quick hit, grab him. And the police had based two Black Hawk helicopters on the other side of the Gulf, over in Baja, California. It was actually, they were in Tijuana. And so what we were doing, the two helicopters were going to take off, and it was like 45-minute flight. That was going to be timed with, as they're arriving, they do the operation, grab him, take him down to the beach, land the helicopters, put him on there, and take him away, right? And then everything's the bad guys realize he's gone, he's taken by air, you know, everybody goes along their way. So what's what's funny about this was our boss at the time, Jimmy Capra, is down in Mexico visiting. And so we briefed him the day before, and we're telling Jimmy, hey, this is going to, you know, this is a great operation, and look how, you know, intricate, and it's going to be good, and we know all this stuff. It's going to be a grab-and-go and so Jimmy's like, oh, no, this is good. So that day, Jimmy and Abe are flying from Mexico City to go visit the office and see Juarez. 
and the operation is is scheduled to go at dawn, right? So Abe and Jimmy are already in the air, and or in the air, and so the team the team goes, and fortunately we had planned for the worst case scenario, so they had actually because we knew all of his hitmen were right down the road in a house outside of the resort. The cops had, we, they had rented the condo at the very front where the gates were to come into the complex. And they had actually mounted an M60 machine gun up there on the balcony in case the worst case scenario and tons of people start showing up. And so uh, the operation goes down, the entry team goes to the door. Um, Macho Prieto hears them, like, you know, trying to breach the door. And this is, this is like a million-dollar um, townhouse. It's a st standalone townhouse, easy a million dollars, very luxurious, very, very luxurious. They breach the door. Macho Prieto and his wife are in there. He grabs an AK-47 he's got laying right next to the bed and just starts firing. And so he starts firing through the walls and the door. One of the police officers that's hit the hip, you know, first thing. So he continues to shoot bullets coming all, you know, out through the walls, the doors. They toss in a grenade and the grenade goes off and actually wounds him. Right. But he continues to fire. But he's also on the radio calling his brother saying, send help, send help. Well, in the. In the videos, in the intercepts that we had from before of the of the organization, we had seen that they had this thing they called the war wagon, which was a big dually truck that was totally up armored that had an M60 machine gun mounted in the back under a cab, right? And so they would regularly use this vehicle. In, in you know things they were doing against other organizations or whatever, so we would we would always joke about, yeah, I hope they don't have the war wagon there, you know. Well, they had the war wagon there, and so here comes once he puts out the help call, he's wounded and he and he climbs into the hot tub because it's like one of those big stone hot tubs to give him protection. He keeps shooting, the the cops are pinned down outside, they're shooting. And here come the cavalry, right? All of these vehicles, you know, 20, 30 different vehicles start coming, filled with bad guys, all tacked out with slings and guns and ammo. And luckily, the, the Blackhawks had got there right when all this was happening. And so they're circling overhead. And here come, you know, the bad guys. So the big, the gun battle's on. They're trying to breach. We had blocked the gate with a couple rental cars that we had rented. One of the vehicles comes in and rams through the rental cars. The M60 on the balcony starts shooting at all the vehicles that are coming through the gate. The guys start, the bad guys start bailing out of the vehicles and coming from the roadway down through the resort between the buildings. Um, and so you have all of this gunfire going on all these different locations. Well, they start coordinating with the Blackhawks, and the Blackhawks start shooting the vehicles as they're coming down the road with the miniguns. So 
you're hearing, you know, the and it, and it's still dark, and you're you're hearing the Blackhawks circling and the miniguns just continually going off, burp, 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 blasting all these cars. And so this the the gun battle associated with this goes on for over two and a half hours. Oh my gosh. The the war the people wagon had to be the, running out of ammo by this time. No, they were. The cops the cops were running out of ammo. Yeah. The Blackhawks the Blackhawks were running out of ammo. And it was really the Blackhawks that were keeping that were saving the day because they had people pinned down and they were actually with the Blackhawks, because since the road was blocked, they started trying to drive down the beach to enter from the beach side, and the Blackhawks were actually engaging on right on the beach in front of the comp on front of the of the the ocean side of the resort, and so they were really keeping a perimeter to you know keep people away. But once they made it into the resort through the sides, they couldn't engage in the resort because there's buildings everywhere. So here comes the brother in the war wagon, and it comes barreling down the road and makes bat, you know, bashes through the parked cars, and it's totally up armored. I mean, like, you know, class six armoring. So the M60 engages it, but it doesn't, it doesn't, there's numerous shots at the windshield, but don't penetrate, but they do penetrate the hood and the engine. So it makes it down to the condo, and his brother gets out and has, dismounts the M60 machine gun and is shooting, you know, with the M60 from his hip. What is he, and freaking his, Rambo at this point? What? Yeah, yeah. Him and his brother, and by this time, the cops are, like, low on ammo, and they're, they, they've retreated back. There was, a, like, a drainage ditch in the middle of the complex and so they're all down with our agents in this ditch you know like oh shit you know what are we going to do now this is you know this is worst case scenario so the um while this is going on his brother makes it there his brother's able to get um get into the, the apartment Get his brother, who's bled out by now. He's he's actually dead, but he drags the body out. Their vehicle is so blasted, you know, so the war wagon's not drivable anymore. But they actually find a car right outside that somebody had left the keys in, like somebody at the complex had left the keys in her car. So they were able to actually get in the car and get out of the complex and what what's interesting because we have obviously there's video and and you know overhead imagery of all this that the the police the state police and the city police from Puerto Penasco obviously the police are calling for help right hey we're police we need police to show up we need the military to show up to help us you can see from the Blackhawks that the police in Puerto Penasco are coming up to where the road ends and are helping to evacuate the wounded bad guys back into the town. They're not, they're not coming to try and help the, you know, the, the cops that are actually under fire. So finally the, you know, the, it, it, we're able to get the army actually shows up 
the Mexican army, some forces from there. And that kind of, you know, at the moment kind of tranquilized the whole situation. And one of the police had uh, grabbed a radio off of one of the bad guy's bodies that he was carrying. And so they're listening to the radio net of all the, it's actually Macho Prieto's brother talking on the radio. And Macho, so the head of our police unit is talking to, I think he's a general, a general of the army, a general or a colonel. And he's talking to him about the, gen, the the army guys, like, who are you guys? Who authorized you to be here? You know, you shouldn't be here. I don't know about it, all this. And so on the radio, they hear Macho Prieto saying, where is, where, um, Macho Prieto's brother saying, where's, where's Macho's wife? Where's his wife? Somebody find his wife. They better find the wife right now. And they hear that over the radio. And then somebody from the military walks up and whispers to the the head commander from the army, and the head commander from the army very strongly with the head of our police unit, or the head of the police unit we were working with, says, where's Macho Prieto's wife? I want to know right now where his wife is. So obviously they're on the same radio net as well. And so all of a sudden also we're getting the intel that They've called out every bad guy, Sinaloan bad guy within the state, and told them to head to Rocky Point and finish off whatever's going on there. And so they realize, like, you know, we're on an island and we're out here and we don't have any friends that are going to help us. So the decision was made just to load up and in the vehicles they had and head toward the U.S. border. Because the border, the Lukeville crossing was about 90 miles. That was the only safe point that they could get to within hundreds of miles where, you know, the cartel wouldn't have the potential to control it. And so they loaded up and all the guns, they, I mean, I think they seized like 50 different long rifles and weapons, loaded all those up. They, we told them just head to the border and we started getting on the phone to coordinate with CBP of, hey, look, you know, this is an emergency. And fortunately, the port director in Lukeville for CBP was the brother-in-law of one of our agents in, I forget where, I don't know if you remember, Abe, but um, so they were able to to get call ahead and tell them, hey, we got, you know, 50 heavily armed Mexican police and DEA guys, and they just drove across the border. And uh, there's actual video our agents filming as they're zooming down the road toward the the port, uh, bad guys, suburbans and stuff flying the other way, going past them, like responding to the, to the Puerto Penasco. So, we were able to get them all across. The the one that was wounded really bad, he was actually, he was shot through the hip. And they had provided him basic medical care there at the scene, like some doctor who told him, like, hey, you're, you're screwed. You're, there's nothing we're going to be able to do for you. At the least, you're going to lose your leg at the hip and you're 
you know, probably going to die. And so we were able to get him across and get him to the trauma center in Tucson. And he was out of the hospital in a week. So, I mean, they were very appreciative of that, you know, of us taking care of, you know, him up there. And then, you know, we was, we was that had, your only casualty, Paul, uh, on the good guy side? Yes. Uh, that how but that's that that's unfucking believable. All of those shots going on and you only get one person wounded through the hip. What about what about the bad guys? How many of those how many of those tangos went down on that side? What are you going to say, Paul? About 46 bodies were all laid around throughout the, the beach there. Well, yeah, all the bodies, all the bodies got removed, right? Got taken out without any kind of documentation or any involvement by the government. But I think we figured out just from the photos we had of, you know, being able to identify people by different clothing, right? You know, the, I think there was at least from the photos we had well over 20. So we figured there was probably at least 10 or 20 more. But it was like, it was like Fallujah. I mean, you have this going on 90 miles from the border, and it's, you know, it's like something you would see, you know, at the time going on Fallujah or some other place. It, you know, it's a military assault, you know, by the bad guys. Oh, yeah, it's a huge counterattack. So after the fact, were they able to go in and root out some of that corruption, some of the corrupt military and police in there? No, 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 no. She's unbelievable. Hey, Abe, while, while this was going on, um, you were going to see your dad, Juarez, right? Yes, I, I had uh, Jimmy Capper with me doing a uh, office visit there, and <clears throat> so while you were sipping tea and having crumpets, there was shit going down. <laughs> when did you, when did you find out about this huge ass gun battle going on while you were uh, you know uh, having tea? It, it was amazing because I got the call. From the other ARD who's um, there in Mexico City, who says, Abe, one of your office, we need to get some uh, other agents. Because I covered Nogales and Tijuana. And sure enough, out of that, those two offices, we actually had joined forces to get the, to get these vehicles there. And um, I told him, hey, whatever we could do to open up the border, of course, through Lukeville there, we had a good friend. I believe he was from... Um, um, Nogales, the, the person that you were trying to identify, who um, was close to the embassy as well, had worked a, um, uh, an embassy tour there, and he helped us out to get across all the ages, all the, all the evidence, all the weapons, all the vehicles into the U.S. How close did the bad guys come to that border crossing? Oh no, they're all around. I mean, they're they control they control the south side, so they're they're all around. Yeah, but I mean, on that pursuit, good guys are flying through the border crossing to get to safety in the U.S. Or the bad oh, guys? No, they were pursuit? they were they were all around and all. I mean, we were we were getting calls from U.S. DEA offices in the U.S. saying, "Hey, our our blackberries are going crazy all at once." Saying, "Hey, send people here, send people here. Is something going on?" You know, so it was it was. But while they were chasing you, though, did any of the bad guys ended up making it to the border and getting stopped, or did they turn before? Um... No, 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 no. They they would have stopped before getting to the POE. But how close did they get to the? How, how close did the bad guys get to the good guys during this chase to the border? I mean, they were they were they were going right past them, and then they we could see them turning around and coming up from behind them. So 
I mean, they were, you know, following. There is a famous Prussian general by the name of Helmuth von Moltke. Anybody? Does that ring a bell with anybody? No. Here's what will ring a bell with you. You know what he was famous for saying? A battle plan never survives initial contact with the enemy. That's true. true. So your perfectly (laughs) executed plan lasted until that first gunshot, right? And so the great thing about Jimmy Capra, who was the chief of operations at the time, my boss, and such a good guy, I call him and I said, um, hey, Jimmy, uh, I said, you know that operation we briefed you on? Good news and bad news. I said, I said, you know that, I said, you know that surgical operation we briefed you on? Uh, well, it kind of went sideways, but everybody's okay. <laughs> Nobody, uh, all the agents are fine. It just got a little more complicated. And um, when, when we... After go on like I think six months, eight months after we capture Chapo, right? And so we actually go up to to DA headquarters and Michelle Lenhart. We're going to give her a presentation. Her and Capra and Tommy Harrigan and everybody a presentation on the Chapo op. And they didn't they didn't even really know the details of this that what had happened and the you know all the stuff that had happened. And we we gave them this PowerPoint presentation. And they were just beyond belief. They were like, oh, my God, you have to be kidding me. And it was, it was, it's just an amazing story. And again, the bravery of our agents, because they we had agents volunteer to go out there on the operation. I mean, they were, you know, they were wanting to do it and, and putting themselves at risk. And then to go through what they went through. And again, it just shows like the sacrifice that, these guys are willing to make. Kurt sent them a notice says, hey, three of the rental cars that DEA rented from us, they haven't made it back yet. Oh, there's more than three. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what the good thing was? We told them, we told the agents when they were renting them, make sure you get full insurance. <laughs> <laughs> get the full uh, coverage. Murphy's Law it, strikes again. Yeah. So let's put this in context, uh, Paul and Abe. So this operation, when you were having tea, uh, Abe, when when was this in relation to the second escape of El Chapo? This was December of 2013. It was about a month before we actually caught Chapo. Okay, so... He has escaped prior to that. So let's let's talk real quickly about the escape of El Chapo the second time, because he's supposed to be in this highly secure prison, right? This is supposed to be their maximum security prison. Wait, but, but Morgan, wait, hold on. Let, we we got to go back. Because, we got to go back some more again? Yeah, because this is right before the first, the 2014 capture, right? So what this does, this is where it leads up to, we realize, hey, to go after this group, the only way you're going to be able to do it is with a unit that's able to fight in the field and has its own resources to fight against, you know, the the you know, militarized trafficking group because, you know, we saw what happened on this operation because the police just didn't have the the resources and the capabilities to to do something like that. So that's really where we decided, look, we got to put all our marbles in one basket. And we were like, you know, hey, Navy, can you help us on this? And can you, you know, work with us on the Sinaloa cartel? So now we're setting the stage. So that's, that's, that's right before... Uh you're talking about that was in December of 2013, you were saying? Yes. Okay. So then in February of 2014, he's finally captured again, right? So 
that brings that, and that's what I'm saying. Is so now he is, and that my my earlier question too was about this. So this time that he's captured and he's in maximum security, do you do you really believe in your heart of hearts that he's actually caught for the last time, or do you think that this guy is going to figure out yet another way to escape? A- well, well, I I think that we knew for a fact that uh, he was at one point called the king of the tunnels. I've never thought, honestly, that he was going to be able to escape a maximum security prison. We knew for a fact that he escaped one, but this one, which is outside of Mexico City, in Toluca, the state of uh, the state of Mexico, honestly, there hasn't been a uh, prison breakout, and the way he escaped was just another one of his tricks, another tunnel that he built from the <clears throat> from his cell to a uh, farmhouse that out there. But it was truly, truly an amazing escape. But but Morgan, I would say. I mean, in in Mexico, I I would always look at things like anything can happen, and there's a good. Uh, the only thing I thought was they wouldn't let it happen because it would be such an embarrassment to the country and to the president at the time that that would you know have some effect on keeping him in there. But obviously, that was not what happened. Yeah, and Abe, I think from our earlier conversations, did you mention something about that that capturing him that first time? Um, was uh, back in uh, 2014. That was more of, uh, that took the country by surprise. It, you, I think, I can't remember if you said it, but it's like almost like they didn't want him to be caught. Yes, they they, they did. Um, they We had, to, of course, working with the Mexican Navy, a special group. It took, uh, honestly, it took um, that intel unit that um, we had, built that intel group and with the Mexican Navy. And sure enough, we had, the U.S. Marshals, we had HSI and, of course, DEA running every single day uh, and over the weekend until we found him in uh, Mazatlan at the resort uh, town of Mazatlan, Sinaloa, there with his wife and the two um, two daughters. Yeah, so, so uh, again, he's finally caught, but he's only in, I mean, he's captured February of 2014. He escapes in February of 2015. Uh, Abe, during that time, did you guys get any intel or chatter at all that he was a, that he had an escape being engineered? Was there any, uh, any uh, even you know uh, just a little bit of chatter, anything indicating that hey, here's a hint that he might be escaping again? Well, we have heard through the through the backgrounds, especially through the intel, that there was possibility of him escaping, but not through the way he actually engineered this tunnel uh, to to go from. Uh, it was a mile long, and it was thirty uh, feet uh, down from the shower of his cell. I mean, it was a, a perfect, perfect um, setup directly of an escape route from his uh, his cell, the shower um, side of it, all the way down to um, to a house about a mile long from the uh, prison. But Morgan, yes, we did. We we had indications there were incredible problems at the prison. We knew there was a lot of corruption. We knew that uh, at the time um, he had a girlfriend who, from early age, like 20 years old, he had cultivated her. She was from a rural part of Durango and had helped him in smuggling marijuana and laundering money back in the day. And so Chapo paid to get her elected to the National Congress as a congresswoman. And 
of, of course, with no qualifications, no background, but was able to. That sounds like know, a lot of the U.S. Congress members of Congress and too. And then she, so she's a congressman at the time. She's showing up at the prison under a false name, and you know, having sex with him at the prison, and then ends up getting pregnant while, you know, from Chapa while he's in prison. So we knew the controls in the prison were really you know, we're not good and the corruption was rampant. Uh, and we obviously had those discussions with some of the people, some of our counterparts. The problem was the prison, you know, the, the way it's controlled and the prison bureau and all of that, it was, um, you know, that it's, it's a very corrupted system. So we had indications we had raised those, those concerns. But I think for him to escape in the outrageous manner he did, I mean, that wasn't, no one saw that as far as, you know, him being able to tunnel out. Well, that's, that was a pretty significant engineering feat. So were there, uh, how were they able to get that exact location to come straight up underneath his toilet? Well, they had, they, we know they had the, because uh, we ended up seizing a copy of it. They had the blueprints for the prison. So somebody had given them the blueprints, like really detailed blueprints. So, you know, from just the surveying of the property and the different coordinates that come out in like really detailed blueprints, they had that as well as uh, Chapo's wife, Emma Coronel. We know now she, you know, went in there with a GPS watch and was able to get GPS coordinates of... Um, you know where where certain things were located, so they they could have that to guide them. Just shows you the overall coordination. I mean, again, it's one of those things. Is that why do you guys like this? Because they do the most outrageous things nobody thinks of that they'll do. Um, you know, and that's kind of their advantage. Is that they're, they're, he's so desperate to get out, he's willing to do stuff like that. Let's roll forward then to uh, a date which will live in infamy because it's the last time he actually escapes, and that's July eleventh, twenty fifteen. Abe. Where are you? What are you doing? I know you're probably having tea and crumpets because you're living the life, you know, uh, you know, having. No, no. <laughs> where, where were you when you got, where, what were you doing when you get the call? Is that, and it almost reminds me too of when Murph and JP were talking about when uh, uh, um, Pablo, you know, that other guy that you guys, you know, might have heard of. Um, he escaped and they're like, okay, game on. So where were you when this, when it went down July 11th? I was actually uh, in San Diego, California back again because um, I had, uh, already ending my tour so i really knew for a fact that i was coming uh, back to san diego as a as an asac and uh, as as i'm here uh, remember this day very specifically especially it's uh, july 11th it's uh, I, get, I asked paul for a couple weeks off to spend the fourth of july here with the family so on on july 11th um 2015 i get a call at like 4 30 in the morning and it's Paul. I'm like, Paul telling me, hey, you got to get up. Uh, Chapo escaped. And I'm like, what? Paul? So I basically, I was still asleep. I hung up on him. And Sorry, boss. Like, no, this Sorry, guy's boss. crazy. Yeah. So, so like, he calls me back. He goes, Abe, Abe, get up. And I'm like, uh, what happened? He says, Chapo escaped. And I'm like, Paul, seriously? He can't escape from that prison. It's a maximum security prison. He escaped through a tunnel. I'm like, that's what caught my attention. He said tunnel. I'm like, holy shit, that's that that was doable. 
And sure enough, I get up and he goes, start canvassing all your sources, start canvassing the, start working with the agents to see if we could to start um, identifying where he's at, start looking at the uh, other routes. So sure enough, we canvassed our sources, made a couple calls to sources and a, an agent to start uh, looking at the next possible um, detention of this uh, Chapo. I mean, honestly, from one year after he was in prison to the following year, he made that incredible tunnel there, which I went through the whole, from one part of the farmhouse all the way up to the prison, I was able to uh, do a, a, a huge recon of that uh, place as well. So you actually went down into the tunnel? I did. I did. I was one of the uh, first Americans to actually go to the tunnel. I took a, um, a CBP Border Patrol guy who's an expert on tunnels as well and uh, basically trying to image his techniques back to um, to the former tunnels that he had since 1993. So we went through the whole tunnel. What kind of intelligence did you get out of that exercise? Well, we we knew for a fact that, uh, of course, he needed to uh, <clears throat> make it deep. He had the same rail system that he had on the ones here that we actually seized in San Diego. The rail system that he had was... <clears throat> Back then, they would use a uh, uh, like a cart with wheels on it. And this one, he used a motorcycle, a brand new motorcycle on on the rails that took him from uh, the place that he started off the um, his prison cell all the way down towards the house. So it, it had to be a quick, quick um, one mile uh, race into uh, and back another thirty feet up uh, ladders. I think it counted like. A total of 56, uh, it was all wooden wooden um, uh, steps all the way up to the farmhouse. So from the time that he drops out of sight till he appears on the other side, how long do you calculate that took him to go from the prison to the farmhouse and get out of, get above ground? I would say within uh, uh, less than 10 minutes. Uh, honestly, to go down... It would be a couple minutes to get on the bike, uh, the motorcycle, all the way up to the, uh, it was one mile to be exact. Um, I would say within another two minutes and another two minutes to go up. And he was out. He was already waiting with a car. They had people already uh, escorting him to a vehicle to take him to a um, nearby uh, clandestine light type of um of a, a plane where I actually had the, the, the plane waiting for him too. Were you able to derive enough intelligence out of the building of the tunnel to under, to identify who, maybe who the engineers was? Did, did it have a signature of people he'd used before? Or was this so easy to do that he didn't really need engineers anymore because he had built so many tunnels? No, he basically used the same engineer that was dated back to 1993. I'm sorry, what was that, Paul? So These were the best of the best, these guys that did this. Speaking of that, just just as a, a, a off on a tangent here, is there any indication that any of these tunnel guys were also working with, because there's another problem, too, when you talk about Israel, about um, Hezbollah and the other ones tunneling up through there. Was there any indication that there was exchange of information, or did you ever get any intelligence that they've been cooperating with uh, Hezbollah or anybody else over from the Middle East on these tunnels, building them? No. Okay. Just that was, like I said, just an aside. So what, what starts spinning up now? So, uh, Abe, you get down there. How does this thing start spinning up? Where, where is this run from? You know, how many people have you got involved? And is this like your number one priority right now in Mexico? 
It, it, it is. Um, so I made that first call, that first initial call to a agent who had a, a direct uh, associate or a direct link to Chapo. And sure enough, within time, not knowing that uh, that source was actually um, being, had been, um, but actually uh, they had a, I'm going to have to uh, use the word here, they had an intercept on his phone and his uh, email. And sure enough, within time, they believed that uh, DEA had um, helped out Chapa to escape because uh, of that source and that first link to um, to uh, that information. Who believed that? Uh, the, the, it's basically their, it's called their CSEN, which is their intel um, agency. It's called CSEN, which is the the. Um, it's basically the CIA of uh, Mexico. And they believe that DEA helped Chapo escape. Yes, because uh, once I made that first call to the initial source and to the initial agent, basically the next day they came out to say, hey, we need to talk to you and your source and the agent. We believe that you guys had an escape route for Chapo. I'm like, seriously, we're the first ones that actually put all the intel to arrest this guy. So just remove the word intelligence from that organization, because there is none. Oh, no, sir, change it to idiot. Um, yeah. Why, well, for what reason would DEA help El Chapo? There was no reason behind this. It was just a... Well, well, I mean, they had to at least have something that sounded halfway plausible. I mean, what was what was their reasoning to say, we know you're behind this because? Well, what was, yeah, what was frustrating was that, okay, here Chapo had escaped, right? and all the things that went with that. And Abe and I are uh, called, or they called my office and said uh, they want to meet with us immediately. And who's they at this point? It's like the head, the head of their CIA equivalent. Okay. And so it's like, okay, hey, it must be something about Chapo. Maybe it's something good. And we get over there, and it's... We get the third degree. Immediate, immediate confrontation of... What is this? And I said, so I read it, and I said, okay. And they're like, we tracked this number back, and we know it's one of your agents in, you know, goes back to one of your agents in San Diego. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, you know, this is right after the escape, and he's calling this number, and he's asking him, you know, about Chapo, and where's Chapo, and how did, he, you know, all this. And I said, well, yeah. I said, Chapo escaped. And so we did like what we probably should have, and we put the word out. Everybody call any sources they have and ask them if they have any intelligence on where Chapo is or what happened. I said, so that's what you're intercepting. I said, I said, you know, I can't believe, you know, we're this Chapo's escaped and you guys are investigating us. You know, like, is that what we should be doing? I mean, it was, it's, that was, those were the things where it was just very frustrating uh, all the way, you know, there was always even more difficult because, you know, things you didn't expect would be like, are you serious? This is what you're focused on instead of who was talking to Chapo and how did he get out of the prison? Well, it's deflecting blame is what their priorities is, right? Because this is a huge embarrassment for them. This is a maximum security prison. El Chapo was supposed to be finally caught and face justice in Mexico, and he's not. So, the easiest thing to do is what blame the people they don't like that became the favorite whipping boy was DEA is what it sounds like to me. 
Hey, and also, I, I, I just want to, like, just to go back a little, but somebody I do want to recognize, beyond all the incredible agents and people we had working on the ground, and, but uh, talking about Michelle Lenhart, if, if it wasn't for her support and her unfaltering support, because not only, as you guys know, not only were we dealing with um, a very difficult environment, but we were having extremely significant details within the interagency of the U.S. government of trying to, you know, coordinate efforts. And, you know, having Michelle there and with her incredible knowledge and her just unfaltering support against a lot of really significant, uh, you know, barriers. And then for her to, um, you know, I went with, uh, went up with Michelle and we went and briefed uh, Attorney General Holder on the case. And again, just to see the interest from him and, you know, his appreciation. But Michelle Lenhart, I mean, with our agency and the people that came up through it, she had such a dedication to the people and to the cause and to supporting the people. And if, if it wasn't for her, we would have we would have never been able to do this without her support. Outstanding leadership at the top. Because I will, I will compare this to we had a new administrator or new acting administrator at the time of the second uh, escape, whose background was not enforcement or background was really, I think, mostly administrative or almost all administrative. He came from another similar style agency that that kind of operates differently than we do. Does it have three letters in its name? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when Chapo escaped, uh, the call to him was, oh, Chapo escaped. And he said, who's Chapo? (laughs) (laughs) Who's Chapo? It's like you looked at him and go, like, you're kidding me, right? This is a test? Because that's funny, boss, if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> who's Chapo? Oh, that, 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 you just got to get a T-shirt with that that says, who's Chapo? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we won't mention uh, that three-letter agency that uh, he came from that ends in I. <sighs> Fill in the blanks. Um, well, look, look, so this thing starts off, right? So give us a sense of the first 90 days, Abe. What is it like? What kind of a tempo are you guys running? Um, what kind of headway are you making in that first 90 days? Well, in that first 90 days, uh, it was it was difficult because it was challenging because not only did we have, of course, CHOPPA, we had the RCQ. We just um, built a... a uh, RCQ was Rafael Caro Quintero. Caro Quintero. So we actually uh, made a um, task force, the RCQ task force there at the embassy to get all the agencies involved. We had that investigation going. We had, of course, the, uh, all the leads with CHOPPA. And um, some of the um, agents had uh, already have gone. So for the so the next, it was just um, hectic running every um, every lead that we had from the U.S. to us, the intel from, of course, HSI. They were up on, of course, of uh, they were up on a couple of. Uh, Title threes, uh, legal intercepts in uh, in the in the U.S. and uh, we had that going, all those leads, and it was just 
working day by day with the Mexican Navy um, to give them additional information so they could take uh, next steps as well. Did you feel like you had a solid lead during that first 90 days? Did you feel like anything had come through that says, okay, we can zero in on them based on this lead or this intel? We did. We did. But uh, I think that intel, uh, because he would actually drop his phones the day we actually executed that first um uh a raid on his ranch we found that he had 60 um iphones 60 iphones in, in a um in a bag or in a, in a briefcase we found that he had over 120 of those sim cards so for him it was very difficult to actually formulate a uh, follow him through the uh, phones and all that but uh like what i've said in the past we're i guess we're um creatures of habit he knew we knew for a fact that he was going to talk to his girlfriend he was going to talk to his wife emma coronel so we hone on on that having having a, a a bit more of intel so we could base so it took him a little bit more than 90 days i think that within the next because it, it took about six months to actually grab them. So within those 60 days, I think we had ample evidence to go after him and and hit him hard this last time. We identified the house where she was living the day that we actually hit the, the raid as well. And the outcome was, it was great. Yeah, so once once he moved again, so he went off the radar probably for at least a month after the escape, he went off the radar. We know we we knew the circumstances and who had transported him because we were able to capture the pilot. Once he came, once he got out of the tunnel, they drove him to a, a clandestine airstrip not very far away, a few miles. He was put on a little Cessna and flown up into the mountains of Durango. And so then we lost track of him. And it wasn't until. Um, Probably another month is when we started getting indications about the location in Durango up on the mountaintop where uh, we knew he was going to probably stay somewhat long term. And so we started planning the operation uh, to to go after and try and capture him there in Durango. Uh, and that's where, you know, we end up having the encounter with Sean Penn and Kate Del Castillo. Well, and well, yeah, we're going to get into that in a minute because he's my he's my favorite piece of shit to pile on. Because um, I can say things like that. I don't have to worry about the government. Uh, well, until I filed my taxes, just remember that if you guys are listening. Um, but so when is the when did you finally? Because the thing about this too is Murph. I hate to bring this up, but uh, they did in six months what took you and JP eighteen months to do. So they're three times more efficient, I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, but they kept letting him get away. We only did it once. We only let him get away once. Yeah, and he did it in style, too. Um, <laughs> but basically the same thing, too. You know, obviously a lot of corruption, the same things that led into it. So for you, Paul, at your level, um, what were you coordinating? I mean, you had a lot of uh, plates spinning in the air at this point. How were you able to manage all of that stuff and still keep the focus on uh, El Chapo? Because you can't let other things stop simply because you got one guy who's escaped. He's a big target, right? But you, So how do you manage all the resources, the constraints, you know, to, to make sure that people like Abe and the other folks in the field have what they need to get this job done? Well, we... What we did was, and a, and a lot of this goes back to uh, 
my SOD when I was worked in special operations. And one of the things we did at special operations was support to the field. So I knew we were going to need more support. I knew we were going to need more resources. So with SOD, we had worked so closely with them and Carl Pike, the head of the Mexican section. So Carl, I told him, hey, we need resources. We need extra bodies to come down here and help us manage this and help us with the intel and help us with the, the communications. And so we got a team from SOD to come down. And we also had, you know, some agents come in from some of the other agencies that were, um, you know, working on this. We got them to centralize all of the resources in our office. So we had one-stop shopping of all the different intel that was coming in from whatever agencies. And then we started, you know, we brought in a, a significant amount of extra air resources uh, to provide air support and transportation and, um, you know, intelligence, support intelligence gathering for the Mexicans. And again, this is, you know, this is all going on in the perspective of, yeah, there's, there's hundreds of other cases going on all throughout Mexico and Central America. And, you know, but this is always the thing you're focused on and always what you're coming back to and the priority you know, but you do get sidetracked dealing with critical incidents, other things, you know, that that have to be taken care of, of, you know, threats against agents or threats against our offices and things like that. But, um, you know, we again, we were able to to really focus the resources and because his network had been so diminished the first time the pool of people and support and logistics that he had had been had dwindled significantly. So we knew there was a very small subset of people that he could go to to help him out. And we knew who some of those people were. You bring up a very interesting parallel and you even mentioned it too. And Murph is what we talked about too with you and JP. One of the ways you went after Pablo was you had to start eliminating his logistics, his support, you know, his communications. You had to start narrowing it down, right? Do you see a, are you, I mean, you obviously see a similar uh, approach between the way you go after Pablo and the way they went after El Chapo, right? Yeah, we did. And it was, although theirs is a little different in the fact that you got uh, Mayo Zimbada, who was, uh, as they described, maintaining a low profile, but he was in a position where he could take over, whereas with Escobar, and you know, and it wasn't all the, the government resources that took him out. You had that group, Los Pepes, that was also decimating the organization down there. But that was, it's basically the same thing. You limit where he can run. And then you limit who can respond to help him. And that's how you, we got to a successful conclusion that had a lot to do with these guys here also. Hey, Abe, I want you to admit something on the air here. You had a picture of Stephen Javier on your wall saying, I want to be just like these guys, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> He's got his sights set higher than that. They did well. They did well. I mean, they brought in their um, a great case, but it was a little bit different, a little bit different, like Murph said, in the sense of running their operations there in Mexico. But um, with honest with the People that we had, SOD, that are uh, helping us out. And, of course, the, the the great heroes are the Mexican Navy with the Admiral's team that he uh, built to make it work. Without him and his true uh, elements that he had, they're the true heroes. They're the true heroes. And that's why I kept going back to Mexico. Didn't understand the first time or the second time until the third time. 
Well, hey, you know, you can be <laughs> Third taught, time's man. a charm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, well, well, Abe, talk about the op-tempo, and, and now you're starting to get closer, because this is obviously, uh, we know it's about a six-month from the time he escapes till he's caught again, so this one's kind of a condensed thing. When do you start reaching the point to where you've got a very high level of confidence now is that we're going to get him this time? It's not going to be 13 years. When did you When did you believe that, hey, we have, we're there now, we, we're just, we're so close, and you had a really high level of confidence that this dude was going to be in handcuffs pretty soon or in, in a body bag one way or the other well i expected that uh, of course we had identified a house a house that we uh, knew for a fact that he had um that we moved him from uh, the ranch site to a uh, house in the city we we had identified that house we were talking to with the uh, amro the mexican uh, marines on this we knew for a fact that he had an escape route as well. And you got to remember that all these escape routes that he had when we followed him in Culiacán, Sinaloa, he always had uh, tunnels leading back to the water sewer, um, um, <clears throat> uh, city sewers. Um, so we knew for a fact that he had an escape tunnel. So when we had the last lead identifying a number that he was going to, they were going to deliver like uh, lunch and dinner they ordered tacos they ordered all kinds of seafood going into a house a big order we knew for a fact that uh, they had a possible location that's when i felt comfortable enough to say it's they're gonna grab them and um lead the rest but um the funny part about all this is yes they arrested him with all this fire, uh, <clears throat> all this, they went in there with full blast with, and people didn't get, um, they killed a lot of the, the bad people. But putting him back to the same place where he escaped at the Puente, uh, not Puente Grande, the, um, the uh, maximum security prison where he escaped, that's what it was. That was that was kind of um, hard to swallow. Going back to the same place he escaped. Well, let's go back before we get to that point too, because I want to I want to nail this thing about Sean Penn. You guys were closing in on a capture of him. I mean, you actually had plans drawn up. You had things ready to go. And then you get this dude named Sean Penn, who, by the way, you want to talk about the, my quick 30-second rant. Here's the height of hypocrisy. These folks who hate guns, they, they, they hate, uh, you know, the, the hate police, they hate anything that has to do with that. Yet, guess who they go meet with? They go meet with one of the, I mean, he's, how, by this time, how many people is uh, uh, Chapo responsible for killing, you think, Abe? How, how many thousands of people? Or were killed on his watch. Oh, there's got to be thousands and thousands of bodies. Just he he admitted to they, 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 the admiral actually had that discussion with him um, after he, after he was captured and they were flying him back to Mexico City and somebody brought up the number ten thousand and he said no it's probably more like seven thousand. Chapo said that. <laughs> no, what a liar. No, but I mean to admit to say no. That's a little high. It's o it's only seven thousand. Yeah, it's only seven thousand. Yeah, but then directly and indirectly, you know, we're talking fifty to a hundred thousand people have died. Oh no, no, exactly. So 
let's talk about this operation. Who now? Who planned the the final operation of the assault on the house? Uh, Abe, was that was that you directly, or the guys that are working for you? How did the planning come about for that? Because you had to write again what we've all learned by now, called an ops plan, right? It had to be detailed, just like that precisely highly choreographed prior ops plan that went south, Paul. So I'm going to ask Abe about his highly you know tuned uh, ops plan for this one. It's it's a funny you ask that because every operational plan that we actually did, we had all the uh, I's dotted, the T crossed, all the, of course, all the weapons and all the things that we had, but everything went sour. We threw that ops plan. As soon as the DCM signed it, which is the last face that you get, you throw it out the window, right? Everybody else is like, just toss it, toss it. <laughs> it's, it's CYA anyway, if something goes wrong. Yeah, I just, did you have an ops plan? Yeah, we did. So, so talk about this getting set up, and then you've got this intrusion by Sean Penn and uh, uh, the, the actress, right? Kate Castillo. How did that come about? Well, we had, uh, of course, we were still uh, had some good intel that um, there were there was two U.S. <clears throat> visitors coming to see uh, people with uh, within Chapel, and sure enough, we identified Sean Penn and Kate Castillo. That they, they, they had rented a small plane um, from L.A. going into Guadalajara. And from there, that's what they uh, that's where they started. That's where our surveillance started on them. We knew for a fact that they were going to meet um, El Chapo um, throughout this uh, venture. That we were, I mean, he was still a fugitive. He was still out there, so we had them uh, as well as lookouts with. Um, How close was their arrival to the date that you planned to launch your operation? It was the same day. They they arrived the day before the operation was going to. So to put it in technical terms, they basically fucked everything up. Yeah. So so what happened was they arrived in Guadalajara the night before the operations plan. And so there was some thinking of, hey, they may not be able to pull this off, right? Like, there may not be a way. They, they may not be able to, like, actually get to where Chapo is because it was going to be difficult transportation-wise. So maybe they wouldn't be able to pull it off. So... But the next morning, and we had surveillance on them in Guadalajara, the next morning we know they went and got on a smaller Cessna and flew to an airport right outside Culiacan. And then um, they were picked up, and we know that it was actually Chapo's, one of his sons, that picked them up. And then they were taken to the, the ranch. So what happens is we know... Uh, you know, that they're on the way, and we're ramping up to actually do that, launch the helicopters, and I think we had it scheduled for 2 o'clock that afternoon of when, based upon certain resources and things we would have, that the, the air assault on the ranch was supposed to happen at 2, and um, from early in the morning, we find out that you know, they had arrived in Culiacan and then they were potentially or were in vehicles headed toward the ranch. So there was discussions in the embassy, obviously, about what complications or potential issues that would cause with even though they put their self voluntarily into this outrageous set of situations of... Uh, you know, doing what they were doing, uh, that, you know, the potential that harm could come to them as U.S. citizens and what was our 
responsibility with that. And so the decision was made to uh, hold off on the operation because they were going to be potentially, we knew there was a high potential for, uh, you know, them fighting back or them shooting at the helicopters and the, the Marines having to return fire. And so based on that, the decision was made to ask the Mexicans to hold off on conducting the operation until after Sean Penn and Kate had left. And so that decision was made about an hour before the operation was set to launch. We asked, you know, the Mexicans and those discussions directly with, you know, the highest levels and they you know, because of the relationship agreed, even though it, again, delayed the operation. And because there was a hurricane right off the coast, and this the, the location of the ranch was probably less than 100 miles from the ocean. But the hurricane, which I think at that time was a Category 4, was coming ashore right near there. And it was going to put, we knew air operations would be down for at least four or five days. So they show up. Um, you know, they're on the plane with it's, it's Kate and Sean Penn and then three producers that work for Oliver Stone. Supposedly they're there to talk about potentially making a film of uh, Chapo's, um, you know, his life story. Um, Kate had been a big supporter of Chapo in the past. She, like a lot of, you know, Hollywood types, uh, when things would happen with Chapo, she had sent out tweets and chats of "Go Chapo, you're the real hero of Mexico," and you know, you fight for the little people, and all of this, you know, BS. He fights for the little people. He kills the little people. He kills everybody who gets in his way. And so, you know, she had that perspective. You know, and she's tried to to do some interviews to try and rehabilitate her reputation and show, you know, say say she's a victim of you know what what came afterwards and that she was persecuted wrongly and um, that Sean Penn mistreated her and lied to her, you know, all of that. And you know, from Sean Penn's perspective, I mean, I think we know based upon before that his you know just hubris and his his, you know, megalomania of thinking he can just do whatever he wants and go to visit Iran, to the Ayatollah, or go to, you know, hang out with Chavez. Uh, but in this case, I mean, it's really kind of indefensible because uh, if it had happened in the U.S., I think he would have really potentially been prosecuted. You know, if he would have, if he would have went and met with him in the U.S., him as a fugitive, and had knowledge and, you know, uh, taken the steps that he took there, uh, I think that would have been, you know, opened him up to prosecution. Uh, so when you really look at it, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of um, beyond, you know, it's, it's hard to understand how someone would think that they should do that or how... One, how they could get away with it. And then two, how did they get away with it, right? Well, you know, he got away with it because he thinks he's the Hollywood elite. You hear he hates the United States of America, but he exploits the capitalism to make movies about the stuff he hates. So, hey, you know, Abe, let, let me ask you a question. What did, how did, 
you had this all going on. You think you had this guy. You've been working this now for six months. Uh, you know, he's an HVT, high value target. He's like your number one thing. For the operation to get called off at that last moment, basically because of Sean Penn, uh, you know, what's your reaction today versus what you could officially say, you know, a few years ago? Uh, I just, I mean, with that uh, perspective, uh, I could say that uh, we're never going to be able to catch this guy. Um, having those two, uh, uh, Sean Penn and Katie Castillo there, just blew every chance of us grabbing him and <clears throat> didn't think we are going to grab him again. How many people, I want to ask you this question, though, too. Because, he, because Sean Penn interfered, how many additional people died because of his interference? Well, I wouldn't say anybody directly died, but we had, uh, you know, just to give you the, the example of because of that, we had to keep people, you know, in the field and in, you know, precarious situations to try and support this operation. And, you know, uh, I believe two Marines were killed in a Humvee, you know, that rolled off the side of this mountain road because they were having to, you know, go try and, you know, come up with some other different route. But the real effect it had was, you know, here we have these resources for deployed. And the more time you have these resources out there, the corrupt elements are all communicating of, hey, what's going on? There's all these helicopters out of Mexico City you know, over here, what are they doing? These are the operators. These are the guys that got chopped the first time. I wonder where they're going. So all of that intel starts spinning up and giving people heads up. You know, these resources are out there. They're actually obviously going to go after somebody high profile. Um, you know, so all of those things just, it just complicated, you know, needlessly. Uh, if you If you really look at it, their actions and the cause and effect it had, taking away anybody getting hurt or potentially killed, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's hard to comprehend from some kind of sane perspective. Well, the the danger it exposed the people in the field to, you know, like you say, the longer you're out there, the more things can happen, more things can go wrong. We already know that they can call up bad guys who'll show up in war wagons, you know, or similar. So you're wondering what could go south? Well, there's a lot of things. I just think it's the, I mean, we could spend a whole episode just talking about um, how much I hate what Sean Penn did on this. And by the way, he's really not that great of an actor, you know, so um, just, so there you go, Sean Penn. Nah, 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 nah. But you know, in my book, he gets credit for the death of those two Marines because they had to go find alternative routes. And true, did, did you guys have the same assets available to you to postpone the operation when the time came to actually go on the op? No, no, we had to we had to, we had to rotate out some resources. Some of the some of the resources we had, we only had for a short window of time. So yeah, it it caused there was an operational impact on your readiness, on the availability of assets, and everything else. You you couldn't have been you weren't you didn't have the opportunity to be as effective. Yeah, the element of surprise was gone. Yeah, too, absolutely. So, I mean, all that stuff. You diminished you diminished your uh, percentage of success on the operation. Because an actor wanted to come down to an actor and an actress. And I mean, let's give credit to the producers also who thought they would uh, produce a film about a mass murderer named Chapo Guzman. Right. And, and to give you perspective. So this is this is the the operation goes off um, four days, four or five days later. Right. Once the weather clears. So it's four or five days later. 
the operation launches. And so this is the kind of guy that they're hanging out with, right? That they want to go down there and break bread with, take pictures with. Hey, and Paul, before you get to that, at this point, did you have intelligence that Chapo knew an operation was uh, being launched? Was he prepared for this? Did you have any indication? Yeah, we had indications of leaks. We didn't know if he would directly knew, but we knew there were leaks of information coming out of the base that something's going on in the area, right? So I would assume he he probably knew his antenna were up. He, he, he didn't know probably we were coming to his location, but he knew something was going on, so they were on edge. And so uh, this guy they broke bread with and wanted to hang out and take pictures and laugh it up and yuck it up, so the operation goes off. The you know we have aerial coverage of the ranch when the helicopters come in. So we're watching it from our command center in the office in Mexico City. The helicopters immediately take fire from the ground from the guards that Chapo has there, which forces the helicopters. Uh, you know the uh, the plan, and generally they would go in and fast rope people onto the ground. Because of that, they weren't able to. One of the very, very close guys we worked with, this guy, his, his nickname was Lobo. He was involved in all, a lot of the Chapo ops and like really, you know, uh, challenging gunfight circumstances. Uh, he ends up falling off one of the fast ropes and, you know, getting seriously, seriously injured where his career was over. I mean, he had to retire out of the Navy. No, this is the type of guy we're dealing with that, you know, um, when the operations launched, um, you know, there's women and children that live there at the ranch. There's women that take care, you know, cook the food and clean the, the places. And they have their little kids there. Um, you know, here's Chapo when the helicopters are coming in and his guys are um, firing on the helicopters. He's running away and grabs, you know, a small child and uses them as a shield as he's running away down to the woods. So, you know, pr to prevent him from getting shot at. And as well, and we know, we know the, uh, th this just shows you the bravery of Chapo Guzman. Uh, as he as he's running away, uh, we captured several of the of the guards that were there. As he was running away, he yells to them, "You mother, you motherfuckers, better fight to the death! Because if not, if I find out you didn't, I'm going to kill all your families." Well, there's an inspiring leader. Yeah, and that's yeah, that just shows you how brave he is. Of of you know, he runs away and expects other people to do the fighting and uses kids as shields. That's that's the kind of guy I want to hang out yeah. with. So Abe, take it from there and tell us about. He gets away right for a few days. He, how was he able to escape from that house? So like uh, Paul was saying, he actually took the uh, kid and used it as a shield. So he was able to go uh, down uh, the mountainside to um, and him and his um, bodyguard. They they take the lead. They go out there, and of course we lost them. So it takes us a couple of days to um, get back on. On some good intel, 
But uh, once we lost the body, honestly, we, we uh, at that ranch site, like I was telling you, we identified, uh, like I said, he had like over 60 iPhones there in a briefcase. He had all these, um, so he swapped sw uh, um, uh, the SIM cards. He had uh, tons of those as well. He had, of course, he had the cooks there. He had uh, bodyguards there. He had um, tons of weapons. He had grenade launchers as well. He was well situated in that office until we take the next, uh, uh, after a couple of days, we found out uh, where he could have been um, his next hideout, which was the next interesting point is that we locate that house and start working with the Mexican Navy on trying to um, see if we could start uh, going into that house as well. Yeah, Morgan, once he, just just to highlight a couple things. So when Abe talks about this, this, this just shows you how difficult investigative-wise this is. So they have this suitcase full of 60 phones. These phones are already, they're, they're rubber band with, with paper on them listing who the phone is supposed to go to. So during, during their operations, they're all communicating. If they know one of their guys gets arrested and, and law enforcement gets access to that device, obviously it might have information on there of where, who the other devices are and who they're talking to. They immediately drop all their phones and pull the suitcase out, and they already have, okay, this phone's got Chapo, this is Chapo's, this is it all. So they, they come up with a totally new net of 60 phones in like a few hours. And that just shows like the, you know, to try and keep up with that and, you know, legally do it with, you know, law enforcement resources is just extremely difficult. And, but that just shows you how, you know, they're able to operate even in these rural environments. And, you know, the, the next step though was that what this did, what this did tell us was the chances of grabbing him in a, in a rural environment are going to be very low because really the only ways to get into these areas where he's going to frequent, he has no problem living up in the high mountains, you know, sitting around drinking and doing whatever, watching cockfights or whatever, that the, the chance of success was going to be very low because they're going to hear the helicopters coming. Um, there's, they're able to run out in the woods or leave, or leave on four-wheelers, and we just don't have the resources to be able to pursue them or to follow them. So the decision was made. We have to wait until he goes back to some urban environment you know, in the city, in a city somewhere that, and we didn't know how long that would be because we knew he had no problem living out in the hinterlands for long periods of time. Living out in the woods, yeah. So that's what, we had to wait it out until we could figure, and there was some, there was some quick intel of one city where that might happen, but it took a while for them to, to build out the logistical support for him at a, at a big walled residence, um, you know, from where, from where he was going to move to. Hey, Abe, let's talk about the final confrontation, because you said you got intel on his next safe house, how, you know, without disclosing, obviously, sources and methods. But how, how did you get that intel, and how confident were you that that was going to be the location? 
Well, during this whole time, during the six months, honestly, I was so frustrated, and uh, <clears throat> we knew for a fact it was difficult. Um, so we just had to track him <clears throat> in ways that uh, we we knew it was the best. We knew for, of course, his mo, identifying the. Um, the two persons that he talked to and identifying uh, we had some great intel on a possible stash house that where he had and um, and sure enough once we identified that house it was in a city environment and we knew for a fact that once they made that big order uh through the um of of course the tacos the uh tortas and the seafood that made us to believe that for sure that we're going we were going to see um either uh one of his um troops uh one of his sicarios groups was going to be there so we knew for a fact that sooner or later chapel was going to go back into that house that we identified and one of the main one of the main conversations that really indicated was for the house in los mochis they started talking about wanting a special kind of king-size bed, right? Like some really high-end king-size bed that, you know, they wouldn't buy. Unless it was some high-level person, you know, they're not going to be considering that. So that was another indicator, you know, potentially. And this was from a known logistics coordinator of his. So that was another big indicator that he was going to go there at some point. Kind of like a bathroom, huh, Murph, for Pablo? Go play the toilet. There you go. So take take us in now to the final operation. So you, you've got the house identified. Now you started getting a high level of confidence. At what point, Abe, did you know that El Chapo was there? Was it at the arrival of a vehicle? Was the movement of people? When did you when did you get that level of confidence to say he's here? As soon as the um, the firefight started with the Marines, we knew for a fact that uh, he had we had identified his main bodyguard, uh, Cholo, which he would be on on um, always with uh, with him during these uh, escapes. So we knew for a fact once we find out that Cholo was there. We knew that he was going to be there. But but when you hit the place, though, you didn't know at that time, right? You said you launched the operation, uh, but only got confidence that he was there when you identified Cholo. What was the why? Why was the decision made to hit the place at that time? At that time, we identified that, of course, the, it gave us two good uh, clues. Was Cholo was there? The food was coming in. Uh, of course, uh, Paul said the uh, the king size uh, um, mattress going in there. We knew for a fact that uh, they called um, La Senora, like the the, the female is going to come in here, like the queen is going to be here. So with that, that gave us basically the clue that he was going to be there. Yeah, because you know El Chapo, El Short shit needs a king size bed. It's <laughs> a lot of wasted <laughs> space. Well, I tell you guys, if you want to see something that is just intense, go to YouTube and go look up the video. Because the the Marines, somebody had a GoPro camera going on on that. And I will tell you, I mean, that is like, uh, I I wasn't there. And my pucker factor was at 12 on this thing. So uh, how long did this, how long did this operation last, Paul, from from the beginning till they breached the house until um, they had Chapo in custody? How long did this thing go on? Well, the, again, this was a, a, you know, probably an, at least an acre walled compound with a house and a, and a, and another smaller house behind it. So when they initially went in and started taking fire right upon you know the first entry, 
Uh, it took them about 45 minutes to be able to clear the residence and to clear all the property. And upon the initial, uh, you know, operation and entry when the gunfire started, Chapo immediately with his main bodyguard, main assassin, went down through the tunnel in the bathroom, just like in the other locations in Culiacan, and went down in the sewers. So by the time they were able... And again, we, we, and especially the Navy, obviously knew that that was one of the potentials and had tried to cover, you know, that um, potential, you know, escape route, but it was very difficult because of the way the sewer system was laid out and the head start that he had that they... Um, you know, Chapa was able to make it a significant distance before they were able to get control of the residence and realize he was down in the sewers. And by that time, uh, by the time they had secured the residence, Chapo and his bodyguard had actually already came out of one of the manhole covers about three-fourths of a mile away. And his bodyguard carjacked a car, and they started driving, trying to get out of the city. So what happened next? Well, an alert had gone out that obviously there was a big operation going on and that, you know, something was going on. So the police had put up roadblocks on certain of the major thoroughfares. And um, the first vehicle they, they um, carjacked, there was some issue with it. It wasn't running right. You know, supposedly the... The bodyguard didn't know how to drive a stick shift, and so he was, you know, couldn't get it going right. So then they got, they, they ended up carjacking another vehicle, which was put out as well that a carjacking had occurred and what the vehicle was. And as they came zooming up to one of the checkpoints, there were the federal police were there, and the federal police ended up detaining him, him and his bodyguard. And, and is that where we get that, I mean, that infamous picture of him and his, and Cholo sitting in the back seat? Um, in the dirty T-shirts and stuff, Abe, is that is that the was that the capture picture? Yeah, that is correct. That is correct. Uh, yeah, let me ask you a tech. Let me ask you a law enforcement question. Why the fuck weren't these guys handcuffed behind their backs and leg irons? They're sitting there like somebody's driving them to fucking daycare. Because that's a violation of your human rights to handcuff somebody. Oh, give me up. Is that you saying that, or is that no? That's that's true. Who says that? No, the these countries. It's Ill, they say it's a violation of human rights to handcuff a mass murderer, somebody who's killed police officers, soldiers, massacred women. Um, I mean, you're just screwing with me, aren't you, Paul? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. One, I'm serious about that. But also the other perspective is, do you want to be the guy that's ordering Chapo to be put in handcuffs if you're a Mexican policeman? Yeah, you know, good point. Murph, maybe he can borrow your balaclava that you wore for a total of five minutes down in uh, Bogota, I mean, in Medellin, yeah. Hey, did, did Murph tell you about that? They, 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 did, they didn't want him to no. t- tell him the story about uh, you and your balaclava. So we're, we're going into one of the barrios in Medellin looking for uh, Pablo, and, and we've got this uh, prosecutor with us. And uh, anyway, he, was, he was actually an ally. He was a good guy, but he's like, uh, yeah, Murph, you're, uh, you're taller than all the Colombian police officers here, and you're about as white as snow, <laughs> you know, so you need to wear this over your head. Well, who wears a mask when you go in when everybody else doesn't have one? The snitches, right? <laughs> so it's just like putting a bullseye on your front, your back, your head, your butt, everything you got. That 
So when you saw that little red dot on your chest, you said, oh, wait a minute, good guy, I'm a good guy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway, no, hey, no, but Paul, that's actually, that's an interesting point. You know, you're right, because I, I, I thought of it just from my point is that, you know, I remember arresting people and stuff. You get some of those folks, it's like, no, no, no handcuff in the front. Handcuff in the back, palms out, get them in leg irons if you have to, put a belly chain around them, something. Well, you know, and, and right after that, so the head commander of the police in Los Mochis, we actually knew and had a prior relationship with DEA in Mexico with him and had worked with him often. And so once they did the capture, they immediately moved him out of, they gave him an assignment overseas, you know, in, a, in an embassy to, you know, kind of lay low. The deputy commander stayed there and he was killed like a week later. So, yeah, that's the, the, that's the consideration of of how that is. Well, that's a huge paradigm shift, you know, and like you're right, it's just it's um it may be antithetical to us, but to your point is what what what's the rules of the road? What what's the culture on the ground where you're at and how they do things? Just uh, again, it's just it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, let's kind of let's kind of wrap this up then because um He's finally, like you said, but Abe, you're saying he's taken back to the same prison, though. That is correct. He's taken back to the same prison for about uh, <clears throat> several months until they decide to move him to a prison out in uh, Chihuahua in, by Ciudad um, Juarez. So what kind of countermeasures did they take this time, or, or measures did they take to ensure he wasn't going to escape out of the max at, before they moved into Chihuahua? They had him, of course, they had a 24-hour guard service there, uh, and then uh, they had uh, all the same uh, little gadgets. They had the, uh, the video camera. They had him not, move, uh, not leaving that, uh, the cell there at all. No visitors. No visitors. They took away uh, as well. But uh, once they identified that uh, it was going to be, a, a, of course, an issue, they moved them to the desert where they, for a fact, he won't be able to do any type of um, tunnels there to Chihuahua. Well, it'd have to be one long-ass tunnel <laughs> out there. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so I was going to say, Steve calls Chihuahua. He called it Chihuahua. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Chihuahua, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you got the sewer rat. That's all this guy is now because he's always using the sewers to escape. They should have just taken the toilet out of his damn cell. <laughs> yeah, but they, um, the interesting part, so they moved him up to the federal prison in Ciudad Juarez where they had just refurbished one wing of it to be a really high security wing. And he was the only one put in there. So he was in this, you know, I think probably had the capacity for probably like 30 or 40 prisoners. He was the only one in there. And they had, you know... Obviously, more control than than um, they did in the other place. They did. Yeah. They did in the other place, but you know, also you have to understand in Mexico, you can you have the ability for un, uh, unlimited appeals, no matter where your case is in whatever process. You can. There is no like, okay, your case is over. You can't file any more appeals. And so, one of the things these lawyers do is they go to a judge and get an order preventing them from transporting them from one prison to another. And that happens all the time. And so that's what was happening originally was his judges were getting all these court or called amparos down there, but it's like a writ 
where the judge is saying, you, you, you government can't just transport him to wherever you want. He's got to stay there because it, you know, it helps him with his family or whatever they're going to say. So that's, that's the other background of how they manipulate the system as well through the legal system of getting kept where they want to be kept. Abe, so answer this question for me. Um, why do you think Mexico finally agreed to the extradition of Chapo Guzman? I think the, there's a, a huge point there that he was still running the organization out of there. It was causing, of course, Mexico a lot of issues. They needed to, to get him rid of. And then I think that, uh, of course, we were pressuring from all sides of the spectrum, from diplomatic uh, and the same time, I don't know if you guys know this, but he got extradited basically in the same time where Trump became our president. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. I, I think, one, it was the huge fear that he would escape again and, you know, and could they survive that politically? Uh, I think is the one thing that drove it because we know there was a lot of resistance at the highest levels of, you know, people saying, look, don't, he knows too much. Don't ship him up North because he knows. He, well, you talk about corrupt politicians. He's probably got dirt on everybody. Who's anybody in the oh, government, I, right? I don't know, but yeah, obviously against a lot of very key high level people. Yes. And, and so I know that was part of the discussions of why would we why would we do that to ourselves? Let's just keep him here. As a matter of fact, the original attorney general, once he was captured the first time, uh, Mario Karam, we were pushing him to extradite him because we told him, look, he's going to escape. He's escaped before. He has the resources. And Mario Karam, you know, flippantly came out in the press and said, yeah, we'll extradite him after 300 years because that's the sentence he's going to get here. And so after 300 years, we'll extradite him, but we're not going to extradite him before that. We, you know, we're our own sovereign country and we can handle our own people. And, you know, obviously that wasn't true, but that was, you know, their, the effort to, you know, kind of well, not kind of, but to cover up whatever he might be able to, you know, to spill once he went to the U.S. if he cooperated. You know, and just like and just like Escobar and the Colombians, they didn't want to be extradited to the United States because they knew it'd be a real prison, not one where you you live in a castle or a country club and you could build tunnels up underneath the damn place to escape through. Well, as a point of reference, here's your here's your useless trivia. But when my dad went to Vietnam out of Fort Carson, we lived in Canyon City, which is where the state penitentiary was, and not too far from Canyon City is Florence, Colorado, where ADX Supermax is. So. Uh, you know, I, that's desolate area out there. I mean, you're not, spoiler alert, uh, Chapo does get extradited and convicted and sentenced to prison. But one of the key things, though, was is that for extradition to the U.S., the U.S. had to agree. I don't know if it was on the table. Was it, Abe? Was, was the death penalty ever on the table? Because that's one of the things you have to negotiate away if you're going to extradite somebody out of Mexico, isn't it? Correct. So the, even though he gets extradited out of Mexico, you cannot give him the death penalty. So would he get a life sentence? But uh, that was tossed out of the table as well, the, um, the, um, the death sentence. Now, did you get to be there when he was uh, taken out of the prison and put on the plane and shipped back to the U.S.? Did, did either of you get to be involved in that? Paul did. Tell, tell us about that, Paul. No, he was, he was, it was a regular, it was like an operation, another secret operation that, you know, had a bunch of loose 
you know, um, loose ends and didn't go as planned. And because the problem was the, if the attorney, if his attorneys, even though the extradition order and the ruling that he was going to be extradited was public and had already been announced, his attorneys at any point could run into whatever judge across the country and get an order saying, oh, you can't extradite him right now until we have a hearing. So the concern was that he was going to be, you know, if they didn't get him out secretly, that was going to happen. And so I was called um, the night before, like the night before the he was actually extradited. I was called about 6 p.m. and told, you know, asked to go to the attorney general's office, which wasn't too far from our embassy. And myself and the the judicial attache from DOJ went over there, and that's when we were told he was going to be extradited the next morning or the next day, and that you know we needed to arrange to have two agents to accompany him, but he would be done on a Mexican plane, and um, that they would need somebody to sign the documents that he was when you know once he's turned over to U.S. custody, they needed the names and they have to do all this official paperwork you know, turning over custody. And so, you know, we selected two of our agents and then um, they, we had to fly them that night up to Ciudad Juarez, you know, on kind of a secret operation to get them up there so that they would be able to, you know, get on the plane the next morning. And of course we were told because of all the paperwork and everything that would have to be done and giving them a physical it would be at least three o'clock in the afternoon on the next day. And so we're in direct contact with the, the person from the prosecutor's office who we had worked with regularly, who was coordinating and was there and was the one that had to read Chapo his order and tell him it was being extradited. And so, of course, he gets there at like 11, and then like at 1130, he's like, texting us saying, get the, get ready. We're coming. This thing's going a lot faster, you know, and uh, they brought him to the airport there with a huge contingent of security and put him on the plane. And he thought he was just being transferred somewhere else in Mexico. He didn't know he was being extradited. And it wasn't until he saw one of our agents who is of Irish heritage that has red hair and <laughs> is you know, very light skinned that he realized, Hey, what's this gringo guy doing on the plane? And well, I would have loved to have been there with that. Oh shit. When you open up the door and it's like, Hey, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. So they turned him over to the U S marshals. Right. And then uh, he goes off from that. I mean, once he's at, once he's in U S on U S soil, obviously in U S custody, um, then after that, he he's detained, and then it goes to trial. Is there was there any other drama between that? Because the trial's a whole nother thing. We're not going to get into on this podcast. But was there any other things that last minute things that were about ready to just um, prevent him from actually being extradited? Was there any last minute requests that might have got in? Oh no, there there was there was always there was always something coming up. His his lawyers were always in the press regularly. There was. I didn't think that he would be extradited. I, I, I really, I, I didn't have that expectation. I knew we, we would keep pressuring, but um, based upon, you know, other things I knew, uh, at the end of the day, I think it was, one, 
we had, uh, and this is to give Abe all credit for this. Abe had made a long-term contact a long, long time ago that turned out to be very, very close with the president of Mexico. And I think he probably had some input with the president to tell him, no, you should do this. This is the right thing to do. As well as, I know Peña Nieto, I think he made the public statements that he actually did it because of his relationship with Obama, that he wanted to do it. Because he was on his way out, too. Peña Nieto was, was, his term was coming to an end as well. Hey, you know what? We got the piece of crap up here. He's in no, prison. No, no, that's, that's the important thing. And then, you know, it's yep. the optics. Everybody's concerned Absolutely. about the optics. But at the end of the day, here's the only optics that matter. A uh, little prison cell in ADX. Uh, administrative detention facility at Florence, Colorado. That's where Chapo will be spending the remainder of his days. Because try tunneling out of that, you little son of a bitch, you little sewer rat. <laughs> you got you to love it because the federal court, they have those, uh, what they call them, J&Cs, judgment committal orders, once a, a prisoner is sentenced. And where it shows date of release for people like him, it says upon death. No, and, and Morgan, I think I think the final thing I would say is, Everybody says, okay, but what difference has it made? You know, drugs are still rolling across the border. You know, the war on drugs is a failure, all this stuff. And what I would tell everyone, and I would regularly brief congressmen and senators and, you know, vice president and whoever was coming to the embassy for visiting and and on different diplomatic missions. And my response would be, look, this guy's responsible for the deaths of thousands of Americans. What about, this is, ju- it's about justice. It's not about, you know, yeah, we want to try and curtail the flow of drugs. And, but this is about justice. This is about getting justice for the victims. This is about holding people accountable, you know, fighting impunity. And it's not a war on drugs. It's a war on crime and a war on evil. I mean, these people, you know, what they do is so evil and you know they they need to be held accountable legally and judicially and fortunately the US has the laws and the capabilities to do that you know in a foreign setting but that's what it's about it's not about you know some failed drug war it's about you know holding people accountable and and getting some kind of justice for the victims you know the people that have been victimized so when people talk about that you know, I was watching the other night. I mean, they make such a big deal on these streaming shows. I, the other night I saw the the one on John Wayne Gacy of, you know, what? He had 31 bodies buried under his house. And, you know, how much attention a serial killer gets in the U.S. These guys are so far beyond that. I mean, these guys are on the scale of, like, beyond serial killers. These guys are on the scale of, like... They're like a Stalin or a, a mousy tongue. They're mass murderers right. is what they are. Pol Pot, yeah. people and, like that. And doing it, you know, for profit and for, uh, you know, their own aggrandizement. And that's where, I mean, look at the comparison and, and the effect, the direct effect they have on the U.S. and all the issues and problems it's caused and people's lives ruined and people dying. And it continues on and on. But that's where I think people need to really look at it and say, you know, that's what 
What's great about the U.S. is we believe in that, and we, no matter where you are, you know, and and at the end of the day, we're we're a, you know we're U.S. agents, so we're working to protect the U.S. and protect our citizens and our national security. But in order to do that, it also obviously helps immensely with the countries we're working in, you know, to jointly try and combat this because you know you talk about being victimized you talk about all the the police that are killed with impunity the military people that are killed with impunity the attacks and and things that happen with impunity in mexico you know the they they're they're don't have the structure the systems to be able to effectively address this and you know the us and the sacrifice personal sacrifice of a lot of heroes and heroic people, you know, on both sides, on the Mexican side and the U.S. side, is, is you know, really what brought this about. And that's what should be pointed to as an example, not, not um, torn down by the, prior, the, the present political system in Mexico that says, oh, this was the U.S. violating our sovereignty and doing all these things nobody knew about, which is totally untrue. Yeah, that's very well said. And, and this interview is with two of those heroes. The guys, but you guys down there risking your lives, your families risking your lives. Uh, and I know Morgan's getting ready to salute you here, but I take my hat off to you and thank you guys for your service. Yeah, that's my, my thing. You can't, folks, say this is me saluting you, saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, look, we've gone on for a long time. We didn't get into, l- let me give you guys just a quick chance to tell us what you're doing post-CHOPO, post-DEA, because at some point you both pulled the plug. Um, you know, Paul, you obviously took JP's advice and said, take this post so that you can become very marketable and valuable in the private sector. So tell us about the limo and the private jet you have in your current role. Yeah, I'm, I'm still I'm still looking for the clause in my retirement where I was supposed to get that. But no, it was again. I had an incredible career. I did more things than I ever thought I would be able to do. More adventures. Saw you know, starting out from you know some lowly patrolman, and you know expanding my horizons of being able to work across the world on these type of things and. Um, you know, now to be in retirement and Abe and I started our own consulting, security consulting for, for international security issues. You know, we, we don't work too hard. We, um, you know, just utilize a lot of the skills and talents we built over the years and understanding of the countries we work in and having key partners and people we can work with in these countries to help out, you know, private citizens or countries or corporations. And so, you know, we've been doing that and, you know, we've enjoyed it and it's great being able to continue to work with Abe. And, you know, we, we, we get a laugh all the time of, you know, what people think is crisis in the corporate world compared to, you know, what... (laughs) Crisis? Let me tell you about crisis, pal. Imagine two Black Hawk helicopters with miniguns and 17 rental cars that will never, ever make it back to the Hertz. You want a crisis, I'll show you a crisis. And, you know, it's, but it's interesting. I, we, I mean, we can see their perspective, and obviously these things are of concern, but it also helps in these kind of situations to be like, okay, let's, let's put this in perspective. Take a deep breath, Skippy. Nobody's dying here. Okay. 
So it's, you know, it's good. Well, Abe, I got an issue with what Paul said because you don't work that hard, except we tried to we tried to record this, and Mr. Abe was on an all-night operation, stayed up all night the next day, so we had to push this interview off for a week because you weren't working that hard. Well, compared to how, how hard we used to work. Okay. Uh, no, we're still working. We're still working. Yeah, yeah. But uh, on top of all that, I think the the true heroes, <clears throat> we made believers of people that don't believe. The, the, the cooperation that we got from the Mexico uh, counterparts were phenomenal. Uh, they're the true, uh, true heroes. I know that it's been an ongoing issue that we had. And making this uh, an honest uh, arrest, an honest uh, you know investigation, and bringing this guy to justice, just make it worse for all of us to to make everybody understand that there is as long as you put some good honest work out there, you're definitely going to get uh, the good results out there. So the uh, on this one, it's the uh, the uh, the heroes without the capes that actually won this uh, battle. So it wasn't John Wayne riding in on a horse capturing Chapo all by himself. Or Iron Man. Iron Man. Well, Iron Man. Either. Yeah, and, and Morgan, just before we finish up, I would like to just Give personally... Give some shout-outs. Like, yeah. yeah, some shout-outs. So, um, you know, some of the people we worked with, that the actual supervisor of the group that ran the Chapo case was an incredible female agent, one of the best I've ever worked with, agents, you know, not just female, Natasha Krogstad. For her to be there, she was a very senior agent, just an incredible calm demeanor, had huge skill set from other things she'd worked with in DEA. And she, you know, having a family, having two kids, two teenagers in Mexico and all the time that this took and for her to just keep this corralled and deal with all of these just huge issues, you know, that, that came out every day and every week. I mean, she was critical. Paul Kinnearum, who now is the chief of intelligence for DEA, but was one of the other ARDs there. Paul Kinnearum was was significantly involved in this and and running a lot of the, the different operations. The guys in the field, I mean, we have, again, offices in the worst parts, you know, of Mexico in very challenging circumstances. And it was easy in Mexico City, where you're in a big city and there's nice restaurants, to kind of lose sight of that. And that's, I know Abe was always on the ball on that, of don't forget the guys out there that are doing the work and are really at risk. And so we had guys like Polo Ruiz, who was the head of our office in Mazatlan, which is in the middle of Sinaloa, you know, and his knowledge and expertise and ability to, you know, operate in the environment. I mean, that's really what made a lot of this successful because we had people with intricate knowledge. We had agents that, you know, could jump in with, you know, and, and be with the Mexicans and be totally trusted and be able to, you know, and had such incredible knowledge that impressed the Mexicans of how much they knew about Mexico and drug traffickers. So it's those type of people, you know, from the ambassador, Tony Wayne was the ambassador when I first got there. His incredible support to DEA, Roberta Jacobson, you know, was the ambassador when I left and when Chapa was extradited. I mean, the, the support from them, again, you know, without it, things wouldn't happen. And they're just... The TCM. Yeah, with Laura Dogu, 
uh, William, Duncan, the DCMs. I mean, they're just incredible people that, that, you know, people don't understand how much it takes for that, for that support and for them to help out and them having, them having a million issues to deal with. And a lot of times it's DEA and the things we're working on that are causing them a million more issues. <laughs> and, you know, for them to, to, to continue to support us, it, it, it was incredible and just incredible, you know, teamwork. Carl Pike from SOD. Uh, Carl, you know, is a character, and and but his support and his knowledge. I mean, all of that. Just it was it was an incredible effort, and the agents that went out in the field, you know, and risked their lives. And um, it's amazing. I mean, I, I'm so. I know Abe is the same. I'm so proud to have been involved with him. You know, it's it was the perfect uh, end to my career because I just got to see. You know, these these guys that I knew, you know, were younger and we're still going to be out there doing incredible things. It really is amazing. And, and it all comes as a legacy. I mean, the legacy that Javier and Steve passed on down the line to us that we kept going and then we've passed on. You know, everybody thinks oh, nobody's going to be able to ever do anything like we did in the old days. And I mean, you're surprised. I mean, it continues on. Um and that's what we got to remember. We still, we got people out there fighting the fight and it's all about justice and fighting evil and we got to keep going. Yeah. The list, the list goes on and on. Hey, Abe, final thoughts from you. I think one of the uh, key things that uh, we had there was the experience of all of these uh, agents that were there. We had not only did we have uh Group supervisors that were new, but they were very uh, in tune with all the Mexico um, politics. We had Miguel Madrigal, who was just another another group supervisor, young. We had people in the offices um, like Chihuahua, Señor uh, Juarez, Omar Ariano. We had uh, Polo Ruiz at Mazatlan. We had um, Rene Marias in Guadalajara. All those guys made just our jobs a lot easier, but they were the guys that always wanted to do the right thing for us, and it was just a great time to work in Mexico, and it made it all happen. And I want to thank you guys, honestly, for giving us um, the time to talk to you guys. It seems like this is the real story. It's not about us or about anybody, but getting this MF off the streets and hopefully he stays there forever. Job well done, guys. Job well done. We can't do this without commercially, you know, with, without a commercial. So uh, g- give us your commercial, Paul. Who are you? Where, they, where can people find you? And what can they hire you for other than, uh, you know, tracking down the next, you know, world's most wanted fugitive? No, they can. the The name of our company is Synergistic Security Solutions, and we're a boutique type operation. We we work, you know, on on some many specialized things, but there we're on the we're on the web, and um, again, you can find us through LinkedIn by our names, and you know, we we provide. Uh, solutions, you know, solutions to problems and through our experience and our knowledge and, and a whole, you know, lot of different, um, not just security, but, you know, a lot of other critical issues, whether it's, you know, issues affecting corporations uh, beyond security or beyond, you know, 
uh, just regular investigations uh, in these challenging environments. So you sound like a group of Sicarios. <laughs> hey, hey, last thing. Did you have to go to language school? Because you got really good Spanish. I mean, did, did they send you? <laughs> he taught at language school. <laughs> no, you're funny. funny roll the R's. I just like the way you say it. Roll the R's, you know. All right, well, hey, well, look, we'll have to have a language class for Murph because I tell you, we were trying to talk the other day and he just slaughtered some words. He's he's regressing. So, you know, must practicar a key. So, and donde es baños, you know, that's exactly right. Baños, cervezas, keywords out there. That's it. folks. And that's a free lesson, everybody. So uh, go to uh, languageschoolsrus.com, you know, for the uh, fantastic instruction. By hey, look, guys, this this has actually went on longer than what we thought. But you know what? It's one of those things. Once you're on a roll, it's like your stories. Uh, if if people aren't just fucking impressed, then you people need to get off the damn internet and get a life. Because if this doesn't impress you, nothing will. And I say that uh, you know, not only cop to cop, but it just as an American citizen that says, when I see my tax dollars being spent like this, I'm sitting here going, hell yeah. So, hey, guys, here's a hell yeah from me and Steve. Absolutely. No, thank you guys both. Thank you for the, for the time and the ability and the opportunity to tell the story. Thank you and stay safe. There's people who read the book and people who wrote the book. And you guys wrote the book and we're glad to have you on here. All I can tell you is that I can't eat my underwear like that dude did in Small Town Police because my <laughs> underwear is so far up my colon. Just the sphincter factor on this episode was like a 10 and a half. Hey, did we tell you? Did we tell you you were going to hear the real story about what really happened down there? And oh while fucking gosh. Abe is having tea and crumpets, Paul's in the middle of a freaking gun, epic gun battle, and cars are getting shot up. You know, we're not trying to make light of it, but I'm telling you, this is like the Mike Neal episode. When people hear this and they hear the people that were really involved, not some wanker and wannabe who writes a book like the first guy who took all the credit for capturing El Chapo, the wanker. Mm-hmm. By the way, Steve, I don't know if I told you this. This guy was actually a deputy sheriff in Kansas, Lincoln County, Kansas, could not make the highway patrol. So guess what he applied for and got a, got accepted oh, to? Geez. DEA. <laughs> well, you know, he, he was our token. Uh, uh, you know what? I'm not going to say anything because I won't get sued here. Hey, he's a, uh, anyway, this is the story. And these guys told it right. This is teamwork. It took analysts. It took the cooperation. I tell you, uh, much respect. We have put onto the uh, website. Go to our website. I put the link to the video of the shootout with the Mexican Marines. And they, when they talk about the one guy in the red shirt being a badass and they worked with this guy, wait till you, you got to go see the video. Go to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com and see the video of this shootout. And when they finally, it was the last gun battle as they were going after Guzman. But I'm telling you, but hey, we also wanted to give you a quick update too on the wife. Uh, and Steve, you know, when we talked with, uh, uh, Abe and Paul, they were, they were saying, Hey, look, uh, there's gotta be, we think there's something in the works and it is her name is, uh, Emma Coronel Espuro. She is the dual citizen, but she's also the wife of El Chapo. Um, and Steve, you know, we, we, like we said, we live here in Northern Virginia, Loudoun County, and she was turned, I think it was, it was all negotiated, right? She turned herself in at the airport to the FBI. She did. You know what? And hats off to the Bureau on this one. Uh, an agent took the initiative to reach out her, reach out to her during uh, Chapo's trial up in New York and said, you know, hey, if you ever want to talk, here's my card. Well, you know what? 
when the reality set in that, that daddy was going to prison for the rest of his life, she pulled that card out and made a phone call. It's paying off. Yeah. So the other thing, too, is uh, Guzman was sentenced to life plus 30 for engaging in what they call a CCE, continuing criminal enterprise. Now, Steve, they set sentencing for September 15th. So by the time these episodes drop, you know, that's going to be here in August. We won't know exactly what's going to happen. But chances are, with what she knows and who she knows, they call it WITSEC, you know, witness protection, witness security that's run by the U.S. Marshals. I mean, I got I to gotta think that she's going to end up in WITSEC somewhere. Uh, she's going to have a huge target on her back by, uh, you know, the Sinaloa cartel. Absolutely. And you got to remember, these cartels, they're so violent. They have very long memories. It's kind of like the mob. Uh, you know, you remember Griselle de Blanco, who was uh, involved with... The Black Widow. Pa- yeah, who was involved with Pablo Escobar. She was convicted of murder here in the States, did her time. Uh, she was deported back to Colombia, and she lasted just a few weeks because the cartel pulled up in Medina. She was coming out of a store and whacked her right there on the sidewalk. Motorcycle and a submachine gun, right? Yep. Yep. So, you know, I'll be surprised if if uh, Emma is sentenced on in September just simply because if she made a plea agreement, you know, the government's going to want to see her follow through on what she agreed to do before she's sentenced. So uh, yep. this this might drag out for a while, but that's just the way the system works. Yeah. And they, they want to make sure. It's but anyway, folks, we told you we promised and we delivered. What a great episode, right? So make sure you go on an Apple podcast, hit that five stars. It's magic. We don't know exactly how it works, but it's like Magic Kingdom. It's really magic. Help us uh, with the ratings. Help us get up there. Head on over to Game of Crimes podcast for more info about the show. We're going to be constantly updating it. Uh, we'll be adding merch you know, at some point in time, but we do have Patreon launch, so make sure you work, go to gameofcrimes.com slash, uh, or I'm sorry, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. We've got those three levels there. Anything you can donate, anything you can contribute goes to equipment, goes to helping us take our game to the next level. And follow us on social media, uh, at Game of Crimes uh, on Twitter and at Game of Crimes Podcast on both Facebook and the Instagram. Steve, we're getting quite a following on Instagram. We've we've built the... We've got some good pictures, and make sure you guys follow DEA Narcos, too, on Instagram. Steve's got some awesome pictures as well, don't you? Absolutely, and, you know, and for uh, the $100 level, I might show them to you. That's just for you, Morgan. You pay me a hundred bucks, I'll show you the pictures. Hey, I, there's some for a hundred bucks. You, I don't want to see what you're going to show me for a hundred bucks. It's anyway, not me and, eating my underwear. I'll tell you that. And also head on over to PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com if you just want to generally support the show, or PayPal.me/GameofCrimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. So finally, go to Game of Crimes Podcast dot com. That's where we're going to be hosting these episodes, and you got to check out the video, right? Absolutely. And you'd mentioned earlier about the uh, Game of Crimes fan club. That's on Facebook. Um, if you're really interested in this, you should join that because there's some sick puppies that are in that fan club, and we're having a blast with them. We try and, to we try and to address we're two them. of them. We're two of those sick puppies, man. They're, that's our people. That's, that's our right. people there. So we thank you for the folks that are in there. I think it's already up to a few hundred uh, members. So come on over and join us. We have some fun. Morgan and I try to respond to as many of the messages that come on there as we can. And, and uh, you know, eventually we'll put something on Patreon that has to do with fan club, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll take care of you guys. So anyway, guys, thanks for hanging in there. we got great stuff coming for you, Netweeks. And thanks for playing the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. 